You're listening to Secret Origins Annual Number 3, featuring the life history of the Teen Titans. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this show has reached another milestone. We're at the third and final annual of the series, and I knew I was going to need a lot of help to cover the extra-large origin of the Mighty Teen Titans. So, once again, I've recruited three wonderful guests to help me out. The first is a frequent guest on the show who gets all of the best assignments. He is one of the hosts of Supermates and the Power Records podcast, both part of the Fire and Water Network, Chris Franklin. Welcome back to the show. It's in the contract, man. It's in the Fire and Water contract. That's all I can say. (laughs) It's great to be back. That's the only explanation why you got Superman, Batman, the Justice League, and now the freaking Teen Titans. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Greg Arujo had to cover the Golden Age Fury. You know he's sitting there going, what? what, How did this? All right. The next guest is coming back to the show for the first time since way back in episode 13, where we talked about the origin of Nightwing. From Pop Culture Affidavit, please welcome back Mr. Tom Panneries. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Welcome back. Been too long. Too long. We missed it. It has been too long. And our final guest is making his first appearance on Secret Origins Podcast. He is the host of Teen Titans Wasteland. Please welcome Mr. Nathaniel Hubbard. How are you, Hub? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. This is great. I've I loved your show. I've just discovered it within the last couple of months. Kudos to Nicholas Prom. He's the one who introduced me to the show. And I knew as soon as I heard it, I was like, well, I've got to get him for this episode. Yeah, well, shucks. Thanks. I'm excited to, to get into it. I love talking about the Teen Titans. And frankly, my wife's sick of hearing about it. So <laughs> got to go on podcasts. Ah, that's what we are here for. (laughs) Listeners, with all of these amazing guest hosts, it's clear I'm trying to poach some of their regular listeners. And if I have succeeded and you're listening to this podcast for the very first time, let me tell you what Secret Origins is all about. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series. And this one is, by a wide margin, the longest. 
Secret Origins Annual number three is 80 pages long. That's second in page count only to the final issue of the series. But unlike issue 50, there's only one story in this annual, the long, sometimes painful saga of the Teen Titans. So, going around the horn, how did we discover these characters? What is our history with the group? And we will start with Tom. What is your history with the Teen Titans? It starts all the way back in 1990. It actually, shortly after this came out, my friend loaned me A Lonely Place of Dying. And I read that, and I had started reading Batman in comics, and the first issue on this that was on the stands right around the time I actually started reading Batman comics was issue 71 of The New Titans, which if there's any issue to actually jump on, 71 was it because it's it's the start of the Titans hunt, but it's also a big recap of everybody's origin. So I read from from there, I basically read the Titans regularly up until the new 52 and dropped it when the new 52 started. But um, I got really, really into it and I was able to collect the bulk of the Wolfman Perez issues on the cheap because it was in a time when those issues were really, really easy to come by and very, very cheap in the back issue bins. And uh, I actually have a pretty decent history with those new Titans comics because my friend Harris and I used to write letters regularly to both uh, new Titans, team Titans, and sometimes the Deathstroke. And we had a few <laughs> published over the years. Um, our shtick, and we, we, we did not believe it sincerely. We just came up with a shtick to try to get published. But we would write letters and we conclude each letter with the phrase, please kill Donna Troy. And there was no reason behind it other than we were just trying to get published. <laughs> and I don't know why we chose her. I think she was the only Titan at the time who had not been, like, captured or tortured or whatever. But then again, we were also 14 or 15 at the time. So, you know, you do things when you're a teenager. But yeah, so I've been I've been a Titans fan for a little more than 25 years. And I have a complete run from DC Comics Presents 26 all the way up to the end of the old 52. Of the old 52. The old, the old DCU. <laughs> right before the new 52 with a couple of small holes. And I have the Silver Age Titans in the Showcase Presents, so I have this gap of that Bronze Age Titans, the end of the original series, and the Titans West, the Bob Rosakis issues. Um, I have a couple, but don't have the money to collect them. And one day I'll have them all, and I'll do an entire read-through. But yeah, so I've been a Titans fan for a very, very long time. It's uh, basically my favorite series ever. That's why you're here. So. Hub, <laughs> what's your history with the characters? It doesn't go back that long. I had an abortive interest in them in probably like middle school or elementary school, so mid to late 80s, where I thought they looked really cool, the new Titans that were coming out right then. And I think the only issue that I had actually read was the one that was for free in the nurse's office, where the Titans really don't want you to do drugs. Um, and I was like, this seems okay, but I don't know about these guys. And who's this guardian guy that they're hanging out with? As they introduce this new character who is just for those. Then I kind of just put it in the back of my mind. I got really into comics in the probably late 80s, early 90s. And then really probably just about six or eight years ago, I picked up a random issue of Teen Titans that I'd found in a yard sale. I was getting really into Bronze Age comics right around then. And it was issue 38, and it was just so completely bonkers. It was an issue where the teen's mentor at the time is a guy named Mr. Jupiter, who was the richest man in the world. And therefore? 
and therefore the most trustworthy. <laughs> and he kind of belies that statement a little bit in this issue because he doses all of the Titans with hallucinogenic drugs that he slips inside of balloons that he sells them when he dresses up as a creepy old balloon vendor. And it had the line, that old freak's like something out of an old horror movie. Yeah, but his balloons are definitely today. <laughs> and so all of the main titans in the story have these crazy drug trips where they confront their worst fear and then they meet together at the end and they're all cured thanks to mr jupiter's invasive lsd therapy and i read that story and was just like okay this is my new favorite comic book series and i went back and i put together a full run of the original titans series i mean most of them are in really dreadful shape but uh i've got at least reader copies of the initial 53 issue run mm -hmm. and then that kind of led me into the new teen titans and i ended up picking up i think i've got the first 50 or so of those again in pretty crummy shape there's some of them that have what i really hope is chocolate on the cover um <laughs> but yeah I've, I've been super into the series since then was that a Bob Haney written issue by chance, that balloon oh, under one? Of course it was a Bob Haney written issue. <laughs> uh, and when I went back and collected the series and, and went through and ha have been reading them all, they're all so crazy. Like, I, I was like, oh, it's going to take a while for it to build to this Bronze Age level of zaniness that I've come to love and respect. So it's going to be a slog at first. But no, it starts off the very first their first appearance is written by Bob Haney and it's varying kinds of crazy, but they're all so crazy. <laughs> and I, yeah, just been very enthusiastic about them. And honestly, doesn't really slow down that much in terms of insanity when Rosakis takes over. And so, yeah, that's really been my sweet spot with the characters has been the silver to late Bronze Age run. Uh, and finally, Chris, what is your history with the Teen Titans? I uh, went back and looked. I It's hard to even think where I first met the Teen Titans, but I'm pretty sure I first encountered them in the Best of DC Digest number 18, which was a reprint title, of course. But that issue had a new New Teen Titans story. This was like 1981 or something like that. And New Teen Titans was probably like within its first year, or a few months after mm -hmm. its first year. And uh, it had a story written by Marv Wolfman, uh, but drawn by Carmine Infantino. That was the first time that Speedy and Aqualad met the new characters. And then it had a bunch of reprints from the Neil Adams era when he was writing and drawing the title after the crazy Jericho story that Wolfman and Len Wein had tried to get printed that got scrapped. But I think that was the first issue I bought because I remember them advertising the new Teen Titans, but I could not, for the love of me, find the comic book. And I finally found issue number 15, which was the final issue of the Search for the Doom Patrol arc. And I was a Robin nut, and so anything with Robin in it, I wanted to buy. And I still, after that, had trouble finding every issue of the book. And that continued up until it switched over to the Baxter series, and we started getting the, the Baxter reprints in the regular book, and then I could find them. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> probably the other kid in town that wanted to read it was buying it at a comic shop somewhere, had a subscription. So, But, uh, you know, I pretty much followed the series. I, I went back, and when I finally made it to a comic shop, I got all the back issues I could. Like Tom, I bought a lot of the New Teen Titans issues when they were on the cheap after the popularity had kind of waned. And, and so I've got a pretty good collection of the series. Um, I've actually got some older Teen Titans issues that will come into uh, what we're going to talk about this time, and I'll bring that up later. 
but I've always been a fan. Uh, Titans Hunt was when I really got to making sure I collected every issue. That was exciting. Uh, unfortunately, the the aftermath of it was kind of a train wreck. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of editorial changes and things going on. But uh, I was a big fan. Basically, as long as as Dick Grayson was in it, I was interested. And uh, when he kind of left and the bad office took him back, I kind of lost interest in it. Um, followed the Jurgens Titans a little bit. Uh, tried that out. I uh, really liked the story arc they did where the old Titans came back. That was a good one. And, uh, you know, uh, I followed the Johns run. I liked that uh, through uh, basically when Johns left. And uh, I've always been a fan, even like the some people don't like it, but I like the uh, the original cartoon, the, the Cartoon Network series. So I've just always been interested in the Titans. Hub, did you cover the uh, what Chris mentioned about the whole Jericho thing with Teen Titans going to introduce the first black superhero and then Carmen Infantino saying, nope, can't do that? Yeah, yeah, I did. And the, the Neil Adams story, it makes no goddamn sense. <laughs> um, and it's crazy, but it, it's also incredibly impressive that apparently, like, he put that whole thing together in a week. Yeah. And, yeah. like, he drew the Cardi issue. It's crazy. And from the panels that I've seen, it's... Yeah, it was. It, I don't think it was really that crazy a story that Wolfman and Lee, and uh, Ween came up with. It really seemed to just be a matter of just like uh, you've got a black superhero. We're not ready for that yet. <laughs> yeah, just put the kibosh on it. And uh, I wondered why Marvel was kicking their butt all over the place at that time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, at that time. <laughs> well, that's when they had just started kicking their butt. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um. My actually like intro. I mean, I knew of some of the characters. I, I guess I must have kind of known conceptually that these heroes all had teen sidekicks that piled around. I think one of the first times I actually saw a version or something like the Teen Titans in action was the two-part miniseries in the '90s JLA World Without Grownups that led into Young Justice when it was the Tim Drake Robin along with Impulse, uh, Bart Allen, and Superboy, the new Superboy. And I really liked the idea behind that. I, I really got behind that. But then, as I was getting into it, like I, I liked more of the concept of the original Teen Titans as the sidekicks with Aqualad, with Wonder Girl, and Kid Flash, and Speedy. When I looked at the new Teen Titans, you know, again, from a distance, this was in, in like the mid-90s at the earliest, and then later on in the 2000s, when I looked at the cast of characters, they didn't appeal to me as much because I thought Starfire was just a cheesecake character and I had no interest in her. I compared Cyborg to Steel, the John Henry Irons Steel, who I liked a lot when he came out of the death of Superman. I never really loved Nightwing's costume after he became Nightwing. So it just felt like that version of the Teen Titans didn't have a whole lot of appeal to me. So it was a long time before I read any of the new Teen Titans. I did like the Jeff Johns version when he kind of combined both ideas, the half of the cast of the new Teen Titans and half of the cast of Young Justice. Um, I thought that was a fun enough story, but my exposure to these groups is still comparatively small to some of the other DC you know, major franchises, but we shall see. Maybe this story will turn me around and make me want to dive back into those old issues. I doubt it. But maybe. <laughs> uh, let us get into the publication history. The Teen Titans debuted in issue 54 of The Brave and the Bold in 1964 at a time when the series was just a random team-up book. In fact, their first appearance wasn't even billed as the Teen Titans, but rather Kid Flash, Aqualad, and Robin. 
They weren't officially formed as the Titans until their second appearance in the Brave and the Bold 60, published almost exactly one year later. This issue also saw the addition of the Teenage Wonder Girl to the team, a decision that has never caused any continuity headaches in future stories. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> After one more trial appearance in Showcase 59, the kids finally got their own ongoing series called Teen Titans, which began in late 1965. Their early adventures were drawn by Bruno Premiani and then Nick Carty, which should tell you how great the stories looked, and they were also written by none other than zany Bob Haney, which should tell you how little sense the stories made when held to any degree of scrutiny. <laughs> The first run of the Teen Titans series ran bi-monthly until issue 43, published in late 1972. Throughout this time, the original roster expanded to include Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy, the bipolar brothers Hawk and Dove, a time-displaced Neanderthal named Gnark, Mal Duncan, who might be DC's first black superhero depending on your definition, and finally, the beautiful red-haired telepath named Jean Grey. <laughs> About four years later, Bob Rosakis resurrected the Teen Titans series with issue 44, but his second run only lasted 10 issues. Not even the inclusion of fan favorites like Golden Eagle and Duella Dent could save Teen Titans from being canceled at issue 53. The kids closed out the 1970s, making guest appearances in Showcase 100, DC Special Series 11, and The Brave and the Bold 149. In 1980, however, writer Marv Wolfman and artist George Perez introduced a new iteration of the Teen Titans in a 14-page preview story in DC Comics Presents 26. This story spun off into New Teen Titans Issue 1, which saw former members Robin, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, and Beast Boy joined by newcomers Cyborg, Starfire, and Raven. This series was a huge hit, and to this day, many people consider the New Teen Titans series one of DC's finest achievements. After three years, New Teen Titans was rebranded Tales of the Teen Titans, and an all-new Teen Titans was created with Baxter paper or something. I'll be honest, I still don't know what that means, but I know it's a big deal. The New Teen Titans characters also appeared in numerous spotlights, specials, annuals, and other crossovers. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, some other stuff happened, probably. Uh, the book became less popular, and most of the cast grew up in one sense or another. The next generation of sidekicks formed Young Justice in the 90s. A decade later, Jeff Johns relaunched Teen Titans with a cast comprised half of Young Justice heroes and half of new Teen Titans veterans. That lasted a couple of years, and then a new version of the Teen Titans kicked off with the New 52. I read the first issue, and it sucked. It was, oh, I mean, it was okay for a nineties further than I did. Yeah, it was okay for a nineties X Men spinoff, but mostly it sucked. When DC rebirths this summer, we're going to get a Titans book starring the cast of the original '60s series, plus a Teen Titans book with a younger team led by Damian Wayne. Now, gentlemen, I know I skipped a lot of details in that publishing history, but was there anything really important that I left out, or any corrections I need to make? There is the um, – around the time of Young Justice, there was a book called The Titans that ran for 50 issues. That It was the Devin Grayson book that eventually yeah. was taken over by Jay Farber that ran concurrently. So when they had that graduation day miniseries that led into the Jeff Johns thing, that's where that came from. And they did a pretty good job of incorporating the Dan Jurgens group into the Titans history through that book. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, that's a very good, quick and dirty publication history. 
Listeners, we are going to take a quick promotional break, but we will be back in a minute with the secret origin of the Teen Titans. Don't go away. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Origins Annual number 3 had a 1989 cover date. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it was published on April 4th, 1989. The book cost $2.95 for 80 pages. The story, called Pieces of the Puzzle, was written by George Perez, edited by Mark Wade, and illustrated by, holy shit, a lot of people. <laughs> we will identify the various pencilers and inkers as we go through the issue, but the book was lettered by John Costanza and colored by Adrian Roy. Uh, before we dive into the story, what do you guys think about the cover? Uh, Chris, we'll start with you this time. Uh, I love this cover. This cover had me at hello. 
I'm a sucker for showing the characters in different stages of their development. And George Perez is one of the best designers, graphic designers in comics. I mean, he can take a page and actually make it a gorgeous design on its own. We saw that in the history of the DC Universe in particular. And the fact that you have the T, you have the original Titans up top, and then Dick Grayson's face as he grows older, and the other heroes as they grow older down through and new members on. It's just the entire Titans history in like one image. I mean, it's it's great. I love it. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking at it right now, and I think to me the Titans, and maybe this is just my bias showing, but the Titans more than the League have this really rich history, like continuing history, and have this evolution to them because they age, whereas a lot of the other superhero teams don't in that way, where they literally grow up in front of the reader's eyes. So you have the sort of evolution of the team through different members and, and different ages. And he includes just about everybody. I think Duella Dent did not exist within continuity at this point, and that's why she's not on the cover. But, um, I mean, the design of it is, is perfect. It's I love how Bumblebee's wings are popping up above the, the panel break there. Perez just always does stuff with so much detail where even the littlest things to him just pop, and, and it really, really works. Hub, what do you think? Yeah, I really like the design. I like the idea of, especially where it's a Robin-centric or Dick Grayson-centric issue, the evolution of Dick Grayson coming down the middle of the T. The one thing that seems almost a little bit off to me, and I do agree, it's a completely gorgeous cover, the inclusion of multiple stages of the characters, it makes sense to me when it's something like Kid Flash becoming the Flash, so you see both of his costumes. There's some of the others. There's like three different pictures of Aqualad where he looks exactly the same. Um, <laughs> And there's a similar thing going on with Speedy, and then like there's two hawk and doves, or um, there's two hawks but one dove, and it, that part just seems a little bit random. But overall, I really like it, and I like the fact that they stuck with one of my favorite and earliest retcons that they've done with the series is they've given Aqualad Tom Jones hair throughout, and he didn't really start off with that, but now he just looks like a tiny little Tom Jones every time you see him, and I think that's terrific. <laughs> So, for the listeners, I know most of my listenership are diehard fans of George Perez. I thought you were going to say Tom Jones. <laughs> oh, if they're not fans of Tom Jones, they will be by the end of this episode, because I'm going to play the hell they're, out they're of his songs throughout They're that. all going to get up and do the Carlton. That's right. <laughs> so, at the risk of pissing off a lot of the listeners, um, the reason I brought you guys on, because I knew you guys would sing these praises, I hate this cover. <laughs> I really hate it. I, I, to me, I think this is the worst cover of the entire series. I don't like this. Dick Grayson is the focus, but he's not in focus. We don't ever see Robin or Nightwing in his costume. We just get these heads that are coming closer, but they're kind of obscuring each other. And the one that's in the front that we can see his whole face, it's not a good-looking face. He's got these dead eyes and this slack jaw in his teeth. Like, he should be drooling. He looks like he's been lobotomized. I, I don't like any of these looks of him, and I, I want to be able to see him, not just his head. And I think the shape, the orchestration of the cover with the T shape and everything, it's it's crowded. It looks like an after-school class picture of like the Teen Titans Club, like you'd find in the yearbook, but it's cut in half. I I don't know. I can't. You guys have said great things about it, and I hope the listeners listen to you and they enjoy it. I hate the cover. I just I can't get past it. 
Am I wrong? We're out. I'm <laughs> out. I'm leaving this conversation. We already killed You I, I, shut I, your I, mouth. That's what I figured. It's going to be me saying, I like George Perez, but we're going to get that a lot over the next hour. <laughs> I think the freaked out look for the final Dick Grayson does kind of make sense, though, in terms of the story that's involved is kind of him dealing with a psychological freak out. And I think yeah. it's kind of trying to convey that. Yeah, but that goes to another thing I have with the story, and we'll get to that by the end of this. Fair enough. Okay, let's get into the actual story. Princess Coriander, better known as Starfire, says goodnight to her date, a guy named Arnie who has light hair, a mustache, and glasses. You know, all of the facial features that Dick Grayson doesn't have. So it's definitely Arnie, not Dick Grayson, who tells Cory he's not feeling well and goes home alone instead of back to her apartment when she invites him. Cory goes upstairs, alone, thinking about how badly her recent dates have gone because she really wants to be with Dick Grayson, but he's going through some stuff. But she's not the only girl with Dick on her mind. I could have phrased that better, but... <coughs> the former Teen Titan telepath, Jean Grey, is waiting in Cory's apartment and tells her they have to find Dick Grayson. He's in grave, terrible danger. Elsewhere... Dick removes his Arnie disguise, revealing that he sabotaged his ex-girlfriend's date with another guy that was really him in disguise when she really wanted to be with him all along. And because deciphering any kind of logic from Dick's scheme would be ulcer-inducing, he takes some Alka-Seltzer tablets. Unless Quaaludes also make a plop-plop-fizz-fizz sound, because Quaaludes would go a long way to explaining the rest of this story. After watching his own reflection in the mirror turn into a hooded ghost that accuses him of failure, Dick goes to sleep. He wakes up, or maybe he doesn't, in an unreal dreamscape where his bed is now his grave and a headstone reading his name and all of the friends and family members he failed. The Ghost of Christmas Future-looking character shouts more ways in which Dick Grayson is a failure and how this netherworld represents the dark abyss of his soul. The Hood tells Dick he'll be haunted forever by his own thoughts and memories. And we will take a quick break there to just talk about this little prologue. Where does this story take place, is my first question, in relation to the Teen Titans saga? Well, there's an asterisk that says this takes place after issue 56 of the New Titans, and that's only because that's an issue that Perez wrote and Mark Bright, I believe, drew, which is a it's, – it's a retelling of an old Bronze Age story or something within the continuity and has like Betty Kane is Flame Bird, no dwell event. This takes place more or less concurrently with Batman Year 3. Okay. Because so, okay. if it's after, because Lonely Place of Dying starts at issue 60 of the New Titans. And through 57, 58, and 59, this is Wildebeest storyline where Wildebeest essentially hacked Cyborg. But the subplot is that Dick's seeing his therapist and, and he's off in Gotham. And there's a lot of this sort of soap opera turmoil that's building up to a Lonely Place of Dying. And that is, you have to read kind of Batman Year 3 concurrently with a few pages of those to see what's going on. So that is why he's psychologically vulnerable or he's just going through a lot of crap. In terms of his relationship with Corey, at this point they were like on again, off again, and he was wearing these disguises to make it look like she was dating a bunch of different people. The red hair and the mustache suggest that maybe she has a thing for Terry Long. I'm not sure. (laughs) (sighs) Who doesn't? Oh, yeah. Well, he had a thing for her even when he was hooking up with Donna. (laughs) Less said about the better. And Lilith is wearing some very nice 
short shorts. But yeah, so so he's go he and Corey are going through a lot of stuff. She seems to want to be with him, but I don't I think he's still it's like he was over the wedding on Tamaran, like from back in like issue, what is it, 17, 18, yeah. 19. But then he's not over it, then he's over it. And then there's like this back and forth. It's It really is one huge soap opera that, that Wolfman was dragging out a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, but this is sort of a character growth arc that comes to a head. Because issue 55 is where they return from space because they were off with the Who is Wonder Girl storyline. Mm-hmm. And he finds out about Jason's death. And he confronts Bruce in the uh, Batcave and just starts yelling at him about, like, why did you let Jason die? And Bruce just decks him Mm -hmm. and kicks him out. So there's that going on, too. It's sweaty, crazy Batman the whole time. It's a great scene. (laughs) It is because Perez drew it. I think McCloud inked it. Mm -hmm. And it's such a great scene. Yeah. That's the issue where he kicks Danny Chase off the team, too. Yes. So long, Cousin Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and issue 56 is actually the Ganark, the retelling mm-hmm. of the Ganark storyline. Oh, they brought back Ganark? Yes, well, for mm-hmm. one story. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's the post-crisis Ganark story, yeah. Hey, so. Ganark might be in Teen Titans Rebirth. Really? He might. <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil anything if, if you haven't read the Rebirth special, but... <laughs> He's no. the one, it's, it's his fault. He causes the new Flashpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's like an alternate Ganarkaverse. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the art, pages one through three are illustrate are penciled by Tom Grummet with George Perez inking, and pages four and five, once we start getting into the crazy dreamscape stuff, uh, pencils by Grant Meum and inks by Anthony Van Bruggen. On page two, when Lilith or Jean, uh, and I do like the short shorts, when she shows up in Corey's apartment, she tells her that Dick is in grave, terrible danger. And for some reason, I flashed on a line from A Few Good Men when that's like a, a sticking point in, in Tom Cruise's cross-examination of Jack Nicholson that he says, like, Santiago would be in grave danger. And he's like, or no, is in danger. And he's like, is it grave danger? He's like, is there any other kind? For some reason, that, that line just jumped out at me. I actually had a slightly different read on the first time I read it through. I absolutely thought, like, wait, so he's dressing up in different outfits to try to solve Corey's game. (laughs) And then when I read it through the most recent time, I was like, I think she knows that's him. And maybe he's wearing the outfits to throw other people off so they don't know that they're still dating each other. Yeah, that's 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 what I got. Yeah, I I think it's the whole deal. You know, they were real real loosey-goosey with secret identities in in Teen Titans. It was kind of ahead of its time in that way. I mean, obviously Wonder Girl never wore a mask or even glasses and – and what, uh, Corey, I'm sorry, did they ever explain why people, did people know that Corey Anders was Starfire? Because I'm oh, sorry, yeah. the giant yeah. pupilless green eyes. <laughs> she, <laughs> no. The doorman calls her princess. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a, um, like she had a modeling career and everything. Yeah. I think she just took the name Corey Anders professionally, essentially. Yeah. The only one of them who really kept up the secret identity hardcore was Dick. And Mm -hmm. in a big way, it had more to do with Batman than it had to do with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I don't think I ever read a book where they said 
if Corey was like, if this was an attempt to have a secret identity or if, because I know the first time she did like a modeling gig and that's like the, is that the day in the lives episode uh, issues? Like yeah, number eight or yeah, something. Number eight, yeah. She's got like sunglasses on covering her eyes, but they quickly dropped that. So, you know, I just always, they never came out and said it. So I'm, I was just assuming that it wasn't a secret. So I get the impression Dick was wearing these disguises at this time, like Tom said, just so it wouldn't be linked back to Batman. Because, yeah. you know, okay. obviously Deathstroke, he had to know that Bruce Wayne was Batman, which is... Yeah, and I know that at times here and there, if there's a superhero gossip rag in the DC Universe, Nightwing and Starfire were always linked romantically. And, and so this is a sort of... Another way of throwing them off the scent, the idea that, you know, she can't be seen with Dick in public because they might like him back to Nightwing. And so it's just this whole thing. The incognito thing from Starfire comes up in the first chapter of Total Chaos. They're hunting down Deathstroke and Corey is standing around like in disguise. And, and Slade has this inner monologue of like, if you're trying to go undercover, don't walk around with a six foot tall orange alien. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Nice. So, did she at least have a trench coat and fedora on? <laughs> you know, she's wearing like a black dress. <laughs> uh, works for Ben Grimm, you know. It's like, <laughs> at one point, I believe it worked for Godzilla in the Marvel comics. <laughs> I like that explanation. I wish I got it from the book and not from you guys. But I didn't get that. I'm just reading the story. In fact, on yeah. page three, when Dick is looking at himself in the mirror and says, man, my therapist said there'd be days like this. I thought there was a very disturbing thing to say after he's taking off a wig, mustache, and glasses after going on a date with his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, no, that was absolutely how I read it the first time. It was only on further reading that I was like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't as batshit crazy as I thought it was initially. <laughs> and he keeps up this disguise, like, all the way up until the Titans hunt. I think the last time, it may make one appearance after that, but he, it's so... If you were a fan of the Titans going in, you would get this joke. Okay. Essentially, or you would you would get the reference. Right. It's it's very very inside baseball so to speak, but All right. Well, let us press on with the story hub. Are you good to take us through the next section of the secret origin of the Teen Titans? I will do my best. Dick Grayson is suddenly thrust into the midst of a recap of the Titans' first adventure. He, Kid Flash, and Aqualad are in the idyllic New England town of Hatton Corners, fighting a local no-good nicknamed Bromwell Stick, who has a fetish for outlandish 18th century fashion and an axe to grind with the town. In addition to his stupid tricornered hat and his cloak made out of passenger pigeon feathers, Brom has recently acquired a magic stick that he uses to control the weather and taken to calling himself Mr. Twister. Catchy. He kidnaps all the local teenagers and starts flooding the town and making a general nuisance of himself. Fortunately, Aqualad is on the case. He rides in on a giant narwhal and bores a hole in the ground that drains all the water away. Hooray! That won't affect the local sewers. <laughs> then Robin lassoes the magic stick out of Brom's hands, and the Tea Party-looking douchebag loses all his powers and falls out of the sky. Oh, and his hat falls off, and it turns out he's bald and has a ponytail. What an idiot. <laughs> After receiving thanks and condescension from the town's mayor, the three young heroes part ways. Then the C-minus Ghost of Christmas Future shows back up and tells the reminiscing Titan that he's lame and stupid and should remember the Titan's second adventure. So he does. When the boy wonder got back from Hatton Corners, Batman was a real prick to him and told him that a team of teen sidekicks was a dumb idea. Then the caped crusader proceeds to rob a bank and backhand the crap out of Robin. The boy detective begins to suspect that something might be amiss, 
and once again seeks the aid of his teen companions, Aqualad and Kid Flash. The trio of teen heroes are approached by Wonder Girl and Speedy, who offer their assistance as well. Turns out that the whole Justice League has gone berserk and started committing crimes and abusing their sidekicks. The young heroes band together and use their training to beat up their uncharacteristically douchey mentors. Turns out that a malevolent force named the Antithesis had been created when the Justice League computers malfunctioned and was monkeying around with the League's heads and making them act like a bunch of jerkwads. The Antithesis looks like a weird nebulous cross between Cthulhu and Modoc and feeds off of negative emotions. Fortunately, the newly formed team of youngsters is able to defeat the powerful force of evil by unplugging the computer he was living in. Worst malevolent force of pure evil ever. The League thanks their protégés for rescuing them and congratulates them on a job well done. The gang decides to continue on as a team, and Wonder Girl and Aqualad come up with the name Teen Titans. Hooray. Then Speedy quits. Hooray. The voice of the hooded figure shows back up in Dick's mind and reiterates that Dick is a lame jerk and a crappy leader. Over Dick's protestations, the voice puts a negative spin on the League's reaction to the Titans' formation, the group's initial rejection of Beast Boy as a member, the time when Speedy joined back up and they fought a giant robotic lamprey eel. Uh, incidentally, that last one happened in a story that was titled Monster Bait. <laughs> <laughs> the time when they met a young Russian hero named Starfire, no relation. And for some reason, the time when Wonder Girl got a new outfit. Huh. Okay. I mean, I guess it was a pretty cool outfit. I just hadn't realized that it was a formative event in Dick's life. Anyway... The memory train next stops in at the time when the Titans were unable to prevent the violent death of Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Arthur Swenson. Despite the fact that the story arc represents the first real failure on the part of the Titans, the hooded voice is being surprisingly gentle about the issue, asking him to please remember and calling him by his first name for the first time in the story. Almost sounds like a different voice altogether. Hmm. Although, seeing as his first name is Dick, it's possible that the voice is being insulting rather than familiar. <laughs> At the voice's insistence, Dick remembers how after meeting a young psychic woman named Lilith, who warned them that they would open the doors of death, the Titans, alongside their occasional allies Hawk and Dove, were attending a peace rally where Dr. Swenson was speaking. Violence erupted in the crowd, and while Robin was outside phoning the police, someone pulled a gun out. Hawk, Dove, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, and Speedy all tried to wrest the gun away, but it went off, and both Dr. Swenson and the gunman were killed. The Titans are pretty sure that the now-dead gunman they tussled with was not the person who shot Swenson. The Justice League shows up and yells at all of the Titans for a while, and tells them that they suck. They forbid the Titans to use their powers or wear their costumes until the real killer is brought to justice. The new-look Titans, joined by the psychic Lilith, put on gray jumpsuits and decide to continue fighting crime without the aid of their superpowers. In their first adventure, they meet a charming young black man named Mal Duncan, who is super good at punching, and he joins the team. During Dick's recollection of their first meeting, his visual memory of Mal is briefly replaced with an emaciated cryptkeeper-looking version of Mal. <laughs> Creepy. Eventually, Robin was able to deduce that Swenson's true killer was an NYPD sergeant who was secretly a member of a right-wing extremist group. The hooded voice starts being a prick again, as Dick remembers confronting the murderous policeman and finding out that he killed one of his own men to frame the Titans for murder. Then, Dick's pajama-bottom-clad psyche briefly finds itself lying on the floor of the Titans' computer center, trying to wake up an unconscious Mal. Dick's mental image of himself tumbles into the open mouth of a giant image of Mal, and into a recollection of what is probably the creepiest Teen Titans story ever. Which is really saying something, because there's this one time when a possessed Wonder Girl murdered a pet cat with a tiny noose. And this is worse. 
think I have that issue. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> the Titans were entreated by a kindly old man named Mr. Manning to help save his grandson Davy from some demons that were harassing him. Seems pretty straightforward. Only when they poked around the house a little bit, they found a baby's skeleton locked inside of a chest. Yeah. Turns out that Davy had died years ago while still an infant and had been replaced with a demon changeling. The Davy-looking demon had been killing people, including Davy's parents, and had only been pretending that the other demons were bothering him. A grimly resolved Mr. Manning got out his rifle and shot the demon that looked like his six-year-old grandson. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) Then he asked the Titans if it would be okay if he left all his property to them, seeing as he no longer had an heir. That is some messed up stuff right there. Robin accepts the offer, but when Manning dies a year later, it turns out that there was a stipulation in the will that the Titans had to remain together as a team to claim the inheritance, and they had broken up for a while at the time. Bummer. But the cavalcade of memories just keeps on coming, and a disoriented Dick Grayson's thoughts turn to a time a while down the road from the Manning incident, when his emergency Teen Titans signal went off a full two years after the group had initially disbanded. But that, my friends, is a tale for another guest podcaster. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for that. The first note that I'll get to before asking everybody else what they think, you mentioned that you thought the first appearance of Donna Troy's red jumpsuit might not be a formative event in the life of the Teen Titans. I think if you ask the irredeemable Shag, he would say quite the opposite. He would say the red jumpsuit Donna Troy was a formative event in every young man's life. I remember that, but I wouldn't maybe put the exception being Dick Grayson, because at that point, he is written as almost borderline autistic. Um, (laughs) In the early issues, there's a scene where Donna is dancing a lot, so all of the other Titans decide that they just have to go into a different room and work out for two days. Uh, because they don't want to deal with it. (laughs) Remember that girl in, like, junior high or high school who was cute, but, you know, you didn't really notice her, and all of a sudden you come back from summer break, and it's like, she's hot, to quote Shag. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what this was. Also, her hair on that panel where they show it, Apparently, she's also, like, singing backup for Lita Ford or something. <laughs> yeah. Little metal chick hair. Oh, no. That is an awesome panel, and I actually really love the artwork in that. Yeah. That's the Michael Blair pages, yeah. and they look so good. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Blair does a great job in this. Yeah. Bear, sorry. Yeah, uh, just going through those pages really quick. Pages <laughs> 6 through 11, which recapped the uh, first adventure of the Titans, uh, was by Irv Novick with Ty Templeton Inks. Pages 12 through 14, the art was by Michael Baer. Pages 15 through 19, the art was by Trevor Von Eden. 20 and 21, art by Grant Meehan and Anthony Van Bruggen again. 22 through 24, Trevor Von Eden again. And page 25, Michael Baer. Do you think that they just like the, all the guys were in the office like here draw this? I mean it was just like it's like well, you take page twenty seven through forty two and I'll do page eleven. You know, it's, I mean, it's, there's you some of, like Irv Novick did a lot of the initial Titans run. He did I think eight through eleven of the original yeah. series, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes sense continuity oh, to have him. But a lot of them, yeah, it's I don't understand why those choices were made. And I like a lot of Trevor Von Eden stuff, but this stuff looks like he did it in a weekend and not a full weekend. Yeah. By the late 80s, early 90s, Trevor Von Eden's style was really morphing into something that's hard to look at. Uh, And I covered a lot of his work on my Black Canary podcast last year. By 1993, whew, it was bad. 
I, I think this stuff is better, but it's still not detailed, and I think it really kind of jumps out as being the weakest art in the book. The first page of it, I actually was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. It's like really clean and very stylized, and I'm like, okay, this is a different take on it. But then the second one, just the face of Speedy on it. I'm like, what the hell is going on? It, you could try. It contrasts well. At, you're right at first with Michael Bear's dream sequences, which are really Bill Sienkiewicz mm-hmm. mm-hmm. ask, which really, really works. I wish he would have numbered those pages, by the yeah. way. Yeah. But you're right. As as you go through the Trevor Von Eden art, it, it just gets progressively mediocre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess. like a lot of Trevor Von Eden stuff. Yeah. I really like his early Black Lightning run. and He did some work. Uh, I don't remember if it was Green Arrow, but mm-hmm. I, yeah. I know he drew some really cool-looking Count Vertigos. Yep. He, does, he created Count Vertigo. He was the original yeah. artist on that design. Yeah. He did the Green Arrow miniseries by Mike W. Barr, and he did some That's of the Green Arrow that. stories from World's Finest. And yeah, I, that, I liked his stuff in the 70s and the early 80s. But nope. He did that awesome Batman annual with, uh, I can't remember the number of that. Was that 10 with the Rachel yes. Ghoul? It was 9 and, or 10. Yeah, Robin. And yeah, that's a great story, Mike W. Barr. I, speaking of Batman, it was cool to see uh, Irv Novick draw Batman again because he was you know, one of the main Batman artists of the 70s and early 80s. And this is very much the post-Neil Adams Batman he's drawing here, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was it was cool to me because I, I grew up on Irv Novick's Batman. So And yeah, he yeah he definitely was uh, sometimes hard to tell because Nick Carty's inks were so heavy. But yeah, he was in on the early Teen Titans issue. So I thought that was cool that they pulled him in from here. I'm kind of surprised. And that's a great job, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. He didn't skip a beat, and I liked him and Todd Templeton together. That's a good combo. Uh, I'm kind of surprised Gil Kane's nowhere in here because he did quite a bit of Teen Titans work, too. You know, I know he popped up in Secret Origins from time to time, so yeah. it's kind of surprising he's not here. On page 11, that bottom panel, when we see the Teen Titans and the Justice League together, I'm finding this more and more fascinating as I'm going through some of these issues. Post-Crisis, they completely do away with the Golden Age Green Arrow look. Like mm-hmm. it's established oh, from his, totally. it's established from the beginning that he has the Neil Adams redesigned look in scenes and uh, flashbacks yeah. to appearances where he would have been in the classic George Papp look. They re retcon that away, like in JLA Year One, mm-hmm. which we recently yeah. covered on our shows. You know, he's back to wearing the golden early Silver Age look. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Hub, you mentioned the uh, the antithesis looking like Cthulhu meets Modoc. I love that <laughs> yeah. description. I, I was kind of thinking something like Cthulhu meets the Quintessons from the Transformers animated movie. Oh. <laughs> He's got a little uh, brain guilty. Guilty. <laughs> brain arms coming out. <laughs> Did you guys see the original antithesis in Teen Titans 53? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have that issue. I haven't looked at it in a while, but I, I do have that issue. Oh my God. Thank God George Perez redesigned that guy i mean it is the craziest looking i can't even describe it it's like an inhumanoid (laughs) like put on uh visionary armor and his head looks like the dude from rocky horror picture show the the butler guy i can't think of his name riff uh, riff raff or whatever yeah yeah that's that's what it looks like it's 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 insane It's also kind of interesting to me that we get here a retcon of a retcon because the first two memories that Dick has is one is of the Titans first appearance in Brave and the Bold 54. And then the very second one is the last issue of the original Teen Titans run, which is Teen Titans 53 which is a Rosakis thing where they went back and tried to fix the fact that Haney never bothered to give the team an origin at all. 
Yeah. They showed up in their second appearance. Like the first appearance, they never call themselves the Teen Titans. And it's just Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad. And their second appearance, Wonder Girl's part of the team. Wonder Girl exists. <laughs> and, and it's just like, yeah, we're the Teen Titans. We've been this forever. We've got a secret lair that we hang out in. And we're not going to bother with telling you the origin. It just already happened. And then so at the very last issue of the run, Rosakis went back and retconned in an origin where they had to fight an evil version of the Justice League. And it, it's kind of fun plugging that into the continuity and just having those two back to back. Yeah. Now, can we talk? I know we should briefly touch on Wonder Girl in case people don't know that Wonder Girl is like the original retcon uh, because <laughs> it's like, just imagine, I always tell when, when this has ever come up, I said, okay, you know, Superman, Superboy was Superman when he was a boy, right? And yeah, people say, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, just imagine if Bob Haney said, I want Superboy in this book with Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad, and he was a Teen Titan. That's how screwy it is that Wonder Girl. <laughs> Is in the Teen Titans because she's Wonder Woman as a girl, or she was before that issue of <laughs> that introduced the Teen Titans by name. Getting to your whole point about the the Wonder Girl retcon and the craziness of how much Haney, in his own mind, like really cared about that stuff. I think the Teen Titans' original cave headquarters wasn't there a billboard outside that had the Batman and Robin TV show, like the Adam West yep. TV show, on a yep. yeah. So. <laughs> In Haney's verse, they're existing in a world where Robin is a TV star. Or somebody playing well, Robin. Or Ro- somebody playing <laughs> Well, and Wonder Troya at this point is like a retcon of a retcon of a retcon. I mean, because you're right, it was originally Wonder Woman as a girl, but then Haney kind of retcon that. And then Wolfman, when the crisis ended they had to retcon the fact that she was Wonder Woman's adopted sister out of it. You're like, so they had, you know, Wolfman had added the, the origin of Donna Troy to the whole thing. And then they had to do something with that. So they had, they had just come off this, who is Wonder Girl storyline with the Titans of myth. So it's like, and yet even at this point, you could explain the whole thing very well. It's John Byrne who screws this whole thing up. (laughs) One of the things that I loved about when Wonder Girl first showed up is I think Haney just like didn't check whether there was a he's like, is there a Wonder Girl? Probably. There is now. <laughs> There's probably a Wonder Girl. What's her relationship to Wonder Woman? I'm not exactly sure. So he has Hippolyta and Wonder Woman standing next to each other. And Donna Troy calls one of them mother, but you can't really tell which one for the first <laughs> like couple appearances. Where it's just like, yeah, if we stand them near each other, we can decide whether she's Wonder Girl's daughter or not later. <laughs> Well, they did do, like, impossible stories that had the three, like, Wonder Tot, Wonder Girl, Wonder Woman, who were all the same person, teaming up with Queen Hippolyta, who they called Wonder Mother back then, which is really weird. Uh, and so so maybe Haney just picked up a copy of one of those issues, saw them coexisting, and said, oh, she's a separate character, not knowing that there was some kind of, you know, either imaginary story or magical thing going on to make this story happen, and... Based on every other story ever wrote, Bob Caney didn't give two shits anyway. You know, Bob Caney did. I was going to say, I think we've already that he picked up a comic book. I was going to say, I think we've already put like five minutes more thought into what he was thinking about yeah. when he put when he put Wonder Girl in the story than he ever thought about it. Right. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to take another quick little promotional break. But on the other side of that, we'll be back with more of The Origin of the Teen Titans. Don't go away. Are you a geek looking for love? 
Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. (laughs) And here's the thing. You're talking about, now think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place booked? Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know, William Shatner was it. But I had the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. I thought, you know. Sorry about that. Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in, I don't know, we don't know. A long sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants. Pants with a belt. With a, with belt. a belt. That's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way, too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things, he, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and... I like this outfit better. Action figures. I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really literally did collect them all. You know. Including Shira. I was going to get to that. But... Meh. Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I think you could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid. You could be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. I married you! (laughs) If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. We're back, folks. Mr. Franklin, will you tell us the next part of the story? I would be glad to. Dick is suddenly in the Titan's lair, in his Robin costume once more, and is now 17 years old. His hooded tormentor, now with stylish shoulder pads, stands unseen amongst Kid Flash and Wonder Girl, who, like Robin, have responded to a priority emergency alert. The Titans are still disbanded, with the heroes all off on their own, pursuing crime-fighting, school, or both. Mal, who apparently has no life of his own, has stayed on, maintaining the equipment and the hope that the band would get back together. Speedy arrives, and present-day Dick comments on how he had just kicked his drug addiction at this point. He leaves out the part about his mentor abandoning him for an old cougar in fishnets. Hey. (laughs) The reunion is interrupted by the arrival of Mort villain Dr. Light, who set this trap for the teen heroes. Rusty from two years apart, the Titans fail to work in tandem, and Light makes quick work of them, abducting Robin and Wonder Girl as he leaves in victory. The hooded antagonizer lays it on thick, admonishing Dick for failing to such a notorious loser as Light. Guess he didn't read Identity Crisis. The other Titans attempt a rescue, but again, act alone and are also defeated and captured by Dr. Light. Only Mal remains, with Light believing that he isn't even worth adding to his collection. The hooded creep implies that Dick and the other Titans felt the same way about Mal, with him being seen as a lesser member of the group. Dick denies this as he witnesses Mal don actual superhero garb for the first time. In the caped and hooded guise of the Herald, Mal grabs his Gabriel Horn, a weapon he'd been working on during the Titans' hiatus. 
Mal uses the horn to travel to the JLA satellite, where Light holds the Titans and the Flash captive. He frees the others, who quickly dispatch the villain per his reputation. Robin attempts to efficiently reorganize the Teen Titans, but meets resistance from Kid Flash and Speedy. Wonder Girl convinces him otherwise, which the hooded one takes delight in, but come on, she's Wonder Girl. Who can resist her? Robin turns to Mal, and he sees his friend's face change into a tortured, screaming visage drawn by another artist. As Dick trip hammers through different moments of this phase of the Titans' history, he notes the hooded person keeps changing tactics, going from good cop to bad cop. He witnesses Aqualad's return, the Titans move to a new headquarters at the Gabriel's Horn Disco in Long Island, and how Mal's girlfriend, scientist Karen Beecher, joined the group as Bumblebee. Dick transitions to another scene, smashing through glass. When he comes to, everyone is drawn with far more expressive faces, and the hooded one seems concerned, (laughs) playing the gentler hand once more. Then Hoodie disappears, and Dick is smitten to see Betty Kane, a.k.a. Flamebird, once more. She and the fledgling Titans West are meeting in a West Coast burger joint discussing the threat of the villainous Mr. Esper. Friendly Hoodie explains how the non-team came together. The USS Tippecanoe suddenly went airborne, floating through the sky, causing passengers Hank Hall, undercover as a sailor for some unknown reason, and tennis pro Betty Kane on board for an exhibition game to go into action as Hawk and Flamebird, respectively. The flying aircraft carrier also caught the attention of unemployed surfer dude Charlie Parker, a.k.a. the Golden Eagle, and TV star Gar Logan, then known as Beast Boy. The heroes managed to save the ship and crew, and then Hank Hall's brother Don, a.k.a. the Dove, and Lilith, a.k.a. Jean Grey, enter the picture. At the burger joint, Lilith explains how Mr. Esper somehow tapped into her psychic powers, giving him the ability to raise the tip of canoe and create other disasters. Lilith was able to predict one of the disasters that took place in New York, so she suggests the new team confirm with the East Coast Titans. Flamebird is ecstatic about meeting Robin once more, despite the not-mentioned but obvious restraining order. Beast Boy hopes they might let him join this time, while Hawk insults Dove as usual, and Golden Eagle proves that pot is indeed harmful. As Dick watches the team decide to head to New York, he notes that Hoodie goes from good to bad once again. The angry man in the pink hood has no idea what Dick is talking about. He's the only Hoodie here. Bad Hoodie takes the pleasure in how the two groups of Titans reacted to meeting one another, with a Marvel-style skirmish before Wonder Girl managed to rope them all with her magic lasso and calm them down. Lilith explains why they broke into the Titans HQ, and her and Robin compare notes. Titans East has been battling similar disasters caused by a new villain named Captain Calamity, whom they captured yesterday. The team split up, with half going after Esper and the other off to prevent his disaster de jour. Of course, Hoodie criticizes everything each Titan does, trying to get under Dick's skin. Esper eventually turns the Titans against one another again before vanishing. But Dick points out that as Robin, he and Flamebird uncovered that Esper was Captain Calamity, and they managed to stop the two-for-one villain once and for all. Despite this victory, Hoodie puts the screws to Dick by showing him the fallout afterwards. Robin is unsure about this new West Coast group, noting that he doesn't have time to run two teams, especially one at long distance. This sets off the left coasters, particularly Hawk, who storms out determined to lead the team on his own. Robin even manages to ruffle Flamebird's feathers, no doubt forcing her to tear up her Teen Wonder Club membership card and finally obey that restraining order. (laughs) Dick comments that he wasn't sure why he acted like that, but he admits it may have been because this Titans team just didn't seem to gel and sales were bad. Dick witnesses Aqualad leave once more as Bad Hoodie basks in the team's slow disillusion. Standing in Gabriel's horn, Dick feels the building shake and begin to crumble. This time the illusion feels real. Trying to escape, Dick hears a familiar voice call to him. It's the hooded figure, or is it? The pink hood is pulled back to reveal the face of Jean Grey, I mean uh, Lilith. Yes. 
Dick comments on how he noticed Hoodie disappeared each time Lilith's past self was present. Dick asks why his old friend is doing this, and is then apparently crushed by the falling debris. All right. Thoughts? Tom, what did you think of this section? Kevin Maguire's art is absolutely gorgeous. It fits the tone of the Titans West characters very, very well. Betty yes. Kane looks like Suzanne Summers from Three's Company. <laughs> and Dick's annoyance, it's like Linus and Sally. <laughs> I am not your sweet baboo. And it goes all the way to like, there's a Titans annual that Jeff Johns writes in like 2000. It was one of the Planet DC novels where like she shows up and he's like, oh God, not her. And um, so it, it's kind of an, it's almost like a running joke, although she doesn't make that many appearances. Uh, she's clearly like a D-list character. Um, this is a huge blind spot for me in terms of the Titans, because these issues for me have been hard to get a hold of. I do have the official Teen Titans Index mm-hmm. series that came out um, that Eclipse or whoever was publishing it. And so I've read the synopses of these issues and they sound like wacky, but at the same time, kind of fun to read. They are fun. Uh, the artwork is really uneven in them. That's probably the downfall of the Verzakis run mm-hmm. is that it had some really weak art. And I hate to say it, but I think it's picked on a lot because he did a lot of great work elsewhere, but Don Heck drew those issues, mm. and the artwork is very, very phoned in. I mean, it's just really – I mean, Kevin McGuire's like, totally polishing this turd. I mean, there's, there's just no way about it. I mean, yeah. it, 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 well, the story's not really a turd, but the, the artwork was – the original artwork's yeah. just really rough. I mean, it, it went from Nick Cardi mm-hmm. – I mean, the old Teen Titans series, as zany as it was – had fantastic art. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I mean, and, you know, and then the new Teen Titans obviously started out with gorgeous art. Yeah. And the middle series, I think that's one reason why it's kind of forgotten. It's just the art's just really poor. And I actually um, wrote an article for Back Issue on, on Titans West. So I don't know. I'm like a freaking Titans West historian, <laughs> I guess. <or> <laughs> you know, and to, I mean, Cockrum, the art I'm most familiar with with Dave Cockrum is, is his uh, Uncanny X-Men stuff, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I always enjoyed. This is – it's all right. Uh, the Mar- Mark Bright drew issue 56 of the New Titans, which was that update of the Gnark story. So that's why he's in here. That's all right too. I give Perez credit though. He didn't have to include this stuff. No. He could have somehow given lip service to Titans West and skipped all the way to – the new Teen Titans, which is what everybody was remembering anyway. And to his credit, he gave this a decent amount of detail. I think maybe Perez was like the only fan of this era at DC at the time. I mean, both Marv Wolfman and Jeanette Kahn have said pretty nasty things about this era <laughs> in interviews. While Bob Rosakis was still on staff at DC, which is kind of harsh. And even Bob Rosakis in that back issue article, when I interviewed him, he, he even mentioned that people said bad things about it, which made me feel bad. You know, it's, I felt bad for the guy. But Perez had done a pinup mm-hmm. of Titans, that era of the Titans, including Duella Dent, who is completely retconned out of here. But they were in their original looks because, of course... There's a lot of retconning going on here. Of course, Flame Bird was originally the original Batgirl. Yeah, and uh, you know, Golden Eagle's got a whole new look that doesn't look like low-rent Hawkman cosplay. <laughs> it's got a fantastic look. It's like way too good for the character, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Hub, what it's did you think? It's weird for me to see this because the artwork is really, really good, and it definitely is better than the 70s artwork by and large. 
but it also looks very 80s. And they also make a point of putting a distinct timeline on when these things are happening. And so even in the first part of the story, they said that was eight years ago from 89, and they're setting it in the present. And the idea that that stuff happened in the early 80s makes it even more implausible than as a Silver Age story, trying to juxtapose it into that era is so weird for me. And the same thing happens with this one, where it's such a 70s story, the Titans West, and they're putting it in the 80s. And it kind of works, but it's a little bit difficult for me to recontextualize it that way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's 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 always weird when it's a very period. It's very of its time, which of course, as you guys examine all the time, the Teen Titans stories, especially with Bob Haney's you know old man grasp of teen lingo, it's so very sixties. So to mad- yeah. imagine those stories taking place ten years ago, even now, I mean, it's just insane. But you know, the sliding timeline and all that. But you know, Perez does some good job. You know, there's who's who's pages at the back of this. I know we'll get to, but. I'm assuming he designed all these costumes because they look incredibly detailed. They're pretty much only somebody like Perez or Kevin McGuire can draw these type of costumes. And, uh, you know, they, they look great. The Mal in the original story puts on the Guardians outfit. <laughs> mm-hmm. He puts on a few different outfits. There is one issue where he gets a new costume and then within two pages says, but I'm never going to wear this costume again. Yeah. Because it's one that a fan had designed and yeah. sent in. And then later on in the issue changes to yet another new costume. And then two issues later, he ends up in the Guardian outfit. Yeah, he's in the Guardian outfit again in the Titans West story. Yeah. He was like the hornblower instead of the Herald, too. Right. He was hornblower for a little while. And I want to talk really briefly, at least, about the way that they retconned the Gabriel's horn that he has into being a science fiction device. Because the way that it originally worked, how he got the horn, is one of my favorite Teen Titans stories. And the new version isn't even really that much less silly. It's just science fiction silly instead of fantasy silly. But in the first one, he is about to die, and an archangel shows up, Azrael. He doesn't have any powers at this point. In a wrestling match refereed by Gabriel, he beats the crap out of Azrael and wins a magical ram's horn that whenever he blows on it, it will even the odds of whatever fight he is in. Then he goes on and plays that horn in a jazz club with Roy. <laughs> he plays a shofar in a jazz club with Roy. <laughs> What was Roy's Why not? Ba- Roy's band's name was what? Great, Great Frog. Frog. Great yep. Frog. Great Frog. Yep. <laughs> Good times. Uh, yep. <laughs> but really, the science fiction version of Gabriel's Horn, where it can just—it's equally as fantastic and equally as unexplained how this thing works and how he managed to design it. I had a question about Mal because um, we brought this up earlier, and I mentioned that depending on the way you look at it, he might be DC's first black superhero. I mean, he didn't yeah. get his superpowers or, or a superpower gimmick for right. about a decade after he was created, but he was created before John Stewart or, or Cyborg or any of their other characters. Mm-hmm. So once he gets the horn and the sort of herald motif, is there any similarities between this kind of character, this identity, and the Jericho idea, that the sort of aborted attempt that uh, they were trying back in the original run? I don't think really there is. It's The, the Jericho, I think, was supposed to be a, a almost like a Batman-type character, I think, and was very racially motivated. And with Mal, they definitely, they will allude to it, and with Haiti writing him specifically, he will talk about growing up in the ghetto a lot. But 
his race is more glossed over than it is embraced. Yeah. I actually did a, a series on my Traveling Through the Bronze Age podcast where I talk about every black superhero to debut during the Silver or Bronze Age. And it didn't take the whole month of February to do that. <laughs> and I had to include, like, the Flippa Dippa and characters like that. Um, yeah, Mal, I, as near as I can tell, Mal is the first DC superhero. And yet he didn't really show up as a superhero, but he was a Titan. And they kept him off the covers of the book for a while. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't until I think almost issue 40 that he shows up on the cover of it. And he shows up in issue 26. It's weird the way that they handle him. Well, it, it's like there was a little, I guess, a little minor controversy over the fact that Lilith kissed him on the cheek she, or in a panel. Is it the one where he goes into space? and? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of, I think, his first appearance. Um, yeah. He, he stows away aboard a rocket to Venus. And it really did look like they were setting up a romance between him and Lilith. And then they just backtracked that. And I guess it was more acceptable to have her date a time-displaced caveman. <laughs> she ended up dating Gnark instead. <laughs> yeah, which actually is kind of a decent summation of DC Comics uh, race relations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gnark, that's the other one that we're missing from this. We don't know yeah, Duel He's in the original well, story. They completely gloss over him, which I understand actually leaving out Gnark if you're going to do that or some of the other characters. But Mr. Jupiter actually would have made sense in the story in terms of the Titans needing a new leader and a mentor. I felt like that could have been incorporated pretty well. And they completely changed the way that the Dr. Swenson story goes and added a thing where there was a real killer. In the comic series, it was just the Titans did a bad job and a good man got killed. And then they were bummed and didn't use their powers for a long time. And then they kind of at random decided they were going to again because probably sales were bad. But I felt like Jupiter actually could have been incorporated into this at least briefly. The things that they did and didn't choose to touch on, I thought were kind of random. And here's yeah. the thing about what they choose to focus on and what they don't. And I'm, I'm going to start, I'm going to put part of my feelings about this up front now, and then I'll come back to it after the story is over. Because up to this point, I feel like the story or is trying to convince me by the way of this Ghost of Christmas Future, this hooded ghost thing, trying to convince Dick Grayson that his entire history with the Teen Titans so far has been one colossal just mistake after mistake after mistake. Like just, and everything about the original Teen Titans was silly or stupid or nonsensical and all of their victories were really just failures and like everything. Like at this point, like when I was first reading it, I was really hating the story because I felt like it's just kicking it. I felt like it was George Perez saying, look how stupid every old version of the Teen Titans was and how bad it was before. And will the story redeem that sense, or will it continue that? I I will get to that once we actually finish the story. But that's where I felt like they were going with that, and I felt like they were really piling on this negative attitude about the old Titan stories. Like I said, I'll come back and and turn to that thought later. Uh, Just going through a few things, the art in this section, pages 26 through 32, as we mentioned, the art was by Dave Cockrum and Larry Malstead. This is Dave Cockrum 10 years after he was working on the X-Men. There is some of his good, some not so good. I think on page 27, there's a bottom panel of Donna Troy being zapped by Dr. Light. And when I look at that, all I can think is ghetto booty. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not meaning that in any sort of judgmental way. I just think that. Um, But also, like, five pages later, we get, like, Dr. Light being knocked out by Robin and Kid Flash. And I also think ghetto booty shot of Dr. Light. So, (laughs) Paradise Island face with a suicide slum booty. Uh. (laughs) 
You're going to ruin Donna Troy for some of us. <laughs> Uh, page 33, the art is by Michael Bear again. Uh, pages 34 through 37, as mentioned, are gorgeously done by Kevin McGuire with Carl Kessel, or Kiesel. Pages 38 through 41, the art was by Mark Bright. And page 42, once again, by Grant Meehan. Like Tom, I knew almost nothing about Titans West. This just These aren't characters that I know very well. I mean, the Perez redesigns for some of these look really cool. And the Titans West storyline wasn't really even the bulk of the Rosakis run. If, if memory serves, it was just a, a few issues. It has a three issues, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's like nine other issues in that arc that had nothing to do with the Titans West. <laughs> he, he had plans to obviously, you know, continue with Titans West, and he was going to shift around who was on what coast and even have Kid Flash be on both teams going back and forth. And they found out they were canceled, so he opted to do the origin story instead in the last issue. So that's uh, – he's like a TV series when they get they get the word that, you know, they're getting canceled. He, he wrote the finale, you know. <laughs> so. yeah. And um, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that most of those Titans West characters, save for like Hawk and Dove and stuff, but like uh, Lilith, Betty Kane, Duella Dance. on the Titans West too. Who? Gnark. Yeah. Gnark. Most of them, their next appearance is at Donna Troy's wedding. Yeah. Um, it, it, not even in costume. They're all guests, like to the point where Duella looks a lot older than she is. And there's this whole it's one of the start of the running joke of like, who is this woman? And um, there's a quick scene where they talk about should they get back together as Titans West? And it's, a, it's just it's total continuity nod. It's like a throwaway. Uh, yeah few lines here and there that I wonder if George had him put in that because he was co-plotting at the time. Uh, there was a push at this time that this book was coming out. They were floating the idea of a Titans West spinoff book. Barbara Randall, Kiesel Randall, because she's Barbara Randall again. She was the editor at the time, and she actually said that, yeah, they were talking about doing it. They had some of the characters out on the West Coast. They were, I think, planning on moving Cyborg out there to be kind of the linchpin, and and Chris King from Dial H for Hero, mm-hmm. and uh, some of these, and, and you know, they, so it was. Uh, I think before the Titans Hunt and all the spinoffs that come out of that, I think that was the Titans franchise plan, and then they got a new editor, and was it Jonathan Peterson, yeah, yeah, Peterson took over the Titans Hunt, which by the time that came on, the book was on the verge of cancellation because. Um, and it makes sense because it, it, right before issue 50, you have a, a Dial H for Hero storyline. Mm-hmm. There is a whole thing with whether or not Cyborg is going to go out to San Francisco because he's out there a lot. Perez comes back and it revitalizes the title. A Lonely Place of Dying sells very well, but there's shipping issues and everything. And you could tell, like, this was per, Peter, it was Peterson's first editing job. And I think by then, Mike Carlin was the editor and he gave it to Peterson. Probably because if Peterson didn't do well, the book would have been canceled and it's no big deal. Hey, kid, this is your first job. You know, like, here's something that's easy. And if it goes south, it's not entirely your fault. And he really did turn the book around. Yeah. And then he unfortunately left before. (laughs) Yeah, he left way before he should have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that Barbara Kiesel and Carl Kiesel did a Hawk and Dove annual that gets as close to a – it's a Titans West reunion. Uh, And it's as close as you ever got to what they were going to do with it. It's about a year after this one, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, folks, we're going to take one final break. 
And we'll be back in a second. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted, <laughs> Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's, that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story, this story is, it's, it's not bad. It's not great. It's, it's like the character himself. It's like, he's just, it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss The Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this, this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like, you know, the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well, it's it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a Dead Man story. It starts to be a Dead Man story. It forgets it's a Dead Man story, <laughs> and then it comes back to being one, um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton, as we discuss Blackhawk that there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm -hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that, tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey, as we discuss Superman. There is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. All right, Tom, will you take us through the final section of the secret origin of the Teen Titans? Okay, here we go. Dick then wakes up in his bedroom, and more appropriately in DC Comics Presents number 26, where we see Raven in her original dark blue uniform appearing to him and telling him to speak to Wally West, a.k.a. Kid Flash. As it happened in that comic, so it happens now, with Wally refusing to rejoin the Titans. Past Raven then says that she will handle Wallace, as she calls him, and that Dick needs to suit up. 
Then Raven appears again, this time in her white costume, telling Dick that, yes, Jason Todd is dead, but he can't let Robin perish as well. A message that he will be hearing from one Tim Drake in just a few months. She then says that she cannot remain in his dreams too long, since she needs to tell him that he has to continue this journey that he is on, and that he has to stay strong because it's the only way he will win. Dick then relives the first few issues of the new Teen Titans with present-day Raven chiming in where she can in response to his thoughts, reassuring him that even though she brought the Titans together, he was the glue, a true leader. We see the origins of Starfire, of Cyborg, etc. And then we see their first fights against Deathstroke and Trigon, and Raven apologizes to Dick for lying to him all those years ago, which is what brought them into conflict with the Justice League because they had thought she was evil and then there was a lot of back and forth as this seems to be a pattern in the history of the Titans. Then Raven's voice disappears for a moment and he sees her floating toward Lilith who says she tried to hold off the enemy but he is too strong and only Dick can defeat him. Raven says that they've done all they could but now Dick has to go it alone. Now the hooded villain talks to him again, or should I say taunts him, reminding him of his torture at the hands of Brother Blood, how he was responsible for the death of Terra, how stupid he was to give up being Robin, and how there are other lost titans such as Cole and Asriel. Mal tries to jump in and give him encouragement, but he's swept aside for more taunting, recapping the incredibly long Brother Blood saga that went from, like, issue number, oh, 13 to 31 of the Baxter series where Dick was controlled by the cult leader. Um, there was Corey's wedding to Karis, her fight with Blackfire where Blackfire took control of Tamarin and exiled her sister and all of this turmoil that his selfish and self-pitying actions caused. Dick has had enough and he bursts from Brother Blood's church, which is where the flashback is taking place into the villain's dream realm where Mal is actually chained up. Mal says, I didn't mean it, Dick. I had no idea. And then when the hooded figure shows up, he reveals himself to be the old Titan's foe, the Gargoyle. Dick attacks, but the Gargoyle boasts that they are in limbo and nothing can hurt them. Then an explosion rocks limbo, and Dick takes the opportunity to attack and defeat his foe, crushing the ring that's on his hand, which I guess is the source of his power. He frees Mal, who wonders why Dick seems to be talking to someone. It's then when the real mastermind behind the dreamscape reveals himself, it's the antithesis. The antithesis screams that he will not allow Dick to escape Limbo again, and then orders the gargoyle to get up. The gargoyle transforms back into Old Man Weatherby. <laughs> he turns back into Brahms Stick, a.k.a. Mr. Twister. Mal then uses the Gabriel Horn to open a portal and to send the two villains away from Limbo. Dick then wakes up and he is surrounded by his Titan's friend. He wonders what happened and Raven tells him that the antithesis wanted revenge. So it transformed Mr. Twister into the gargoyle and used Dick's recent emotional turmoil to get inside his head and torture and possibly kill him. The gargoyle also wanted revenge on Mal, who once had sent him to Limbo and he used them to release the antithesis and capture the Titans. We then get a recap of everyone's role in the drama before Dick offers to throw a celebration in the tower. Lilith says she's got to go. Mal and Karen decide to get a hotel room. But we finish with a shot of most of the Titans, except Gar, who at this point had to go back home because his grades suck. Toasting to the Titans in the future. The narration boxes on page 66 say... It all started with three children and a dream, a dream that they could make a difference, a dream that they could be good enough to make that dream last. Cyborg, Jericho, Nightwing, Raven, and Starfire and Troya. New names, new futures, same dream. 
dedicated to Bob Haney, Bruno Premiani, and Charles Paris for starting it all, and to all the professionals and fans who have kept the Titans legend alive for 25 years, the dream continues. All right. Thank you very much. Thoughts on the final section of the Teen Titans origin. Hub, what did you think? There's a lot that I really dug about this. I love the inclusion of the gargoyle, and I thought that was actually a really nice nod to the original series because when the gargoyle first shows up, he does say that he was one of the Titans' previous foes. And they never got back to that, and I thought it was a nice way for him to nod to the Haney issues and include him in it. I thought that was really cool, and I just love the gargoyle. The two ways that the Titans have defeated him in the past, one, Robin crushes his ring with a pair of tiny pliers that he brought into limbo with him. (laughs) And two, Mal, in a backup story, and this is one of the things that I liked about this, is that it cites issue 35 as a reference. That's a Mal backup story that was like four pages, in which Mal fights the gargoyle, who is undercover as a guy who is just a scientist, and he tricks him by doing the limbo. And when he does the limbo, the gargoyle is like, limbo? Ah, that's terrible. Limbo's an awful thing. (laughs) Because he's been trapped in limbo for a long time. So, yeah, party dancing and tiny pliers are his two weaknesses, and I love that he got incorporated into this story. There was a lot that I liked about this, and and that, that was the main thing, and I thought that was actually a pretty clever way to do it, and he had some kind of deep cuts in there that I appreciated. And... I like that they all end up having a beer. (laughs) Chris, what did you think? Well, this story, it just so happened that not too long before I bought this one, it was basically new when I bought it. I I think I remember seeing an ad for it. I went to the comic shop, which I rarely got to at that age because I couldn't drive yet. And I had to get my mom or somebody to take me to the big city, to the only comic shop that was around. And it was already in the back issue bin, but they hadn't jacked up the price yet. But not too long before in that same comic shop, I had bought my first old issue of the original Teen Titans, and that was number 14, which was the first appearance of the Gargoyle with that awesome Nick Cardi cover, Quit Robin Quit. Mm, That's a gorgeous cover. The book, it seems like it transported from the early 70s Titans back into the late 60s Titans. It's it's really a strange issue in amongst all the zany haniness. Uh, it's still zany, but it's like dark zany. But I always loved that issue. I'd only had it for, you know, maybe a year or two before this came out. So when I read it, I'm like... Holy crap, freaking gargoyle, you know. It was like, this is made for me, you know. <laughs> I really felt like this is exactly, you know, it's answered. It answered who the gargoyle, like, like I brought up, it answered who the gargoyle was. He was supposed to be an old villain. So, you know, Perez is picking up threads from like 20 years ago. And I thought it was just really satisfying. Looking back at it now, I realize if you didn't have that experience with that issue, you would be totally lost. (laughs) Although there was a big part of me that was really hoping the gargoyle's secret identity would turn out to be Ding Dong Daddy Dowd. I think that's why they have that with basically it's pages 63, 64 and part of 65 are just basically an info dump that essentially explains to the untrained because uh, when I first read this years ago, uh, I didn't buy it off the stand. I got it in a back issue. I had no idea who the gargoyle was mm-hmm. and the antithesis or anything like that. But 
him explain them ex- kind of going through this whole info dump at the end did give me enough context to look back at the story and be like, oh, okay, now I understand. It's like an old villain getting revenge. And since it was the complete history of the Teen Titans and not just the new Teen Titans, it made total sense to me that a villain from all the way back was messing with them, um, especially Robin. But I think he did a good – I mean – the story from DC Comics Presents up to this point really does have a through line to it in a way that a lot of stories prior, you know, did and didn't. But Wolfman and Paris, is the strength of their series is the way everything tied together and they played a serious long game when it comes to a lot of the characters, Deathstroke especially. He gets the contract from the Hive in issue two and it's resolved like four years later. And resolved in a way that this was essentially planned in a sense, not in a Chris Claremont, we're eventually going to wrap this up 10 years later in an X-Men issue way. And Perez does a good job of being very concise with this and then even going to some of those issues immediately post-crisis with Brother Blood and, you know, Cole, who was essentially crisis cannon fodder anyway. Asriel, who we at this point last saw at where they drop Brother Blood off after that whole saga. In fact, he makes one more appearance, to my knowledge, and it's during the JLA Titans series. The only the, the funny thing is because Michael Bear's art is really, really good, although on page, I don't even know the number. It's the one where they show him on the top panel being tortured by Brother Blood's people. It, yeah. He's in his Nightwing costume, and if I recall correctly, he's not Nightwing yet when that happens. I think he's in his Robin costume. It's re- colored incorrectly because he's yeah, got the little boots. Oh yeah, yeah. So so it's all yeah. You're right. It, it does look like his Robin costume. So it, it's all sorts of kind of yeah. It's miscolored then because yeah. he was not Nightwing before. He was Nightwing before Terra died, but he became Nightwing like immediately before the death of Terra, and it was after Brother Blood. But that's me nitpicking because that was know. the Judas contract, right? He became that's Nightwing Judas during the- Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tom Grummet would be the regular penciler going forward, except for when George Perez was actually drawing the issues. And Perez's inks on him work sometimes if they don't work. I much preferred him when Alve was inking him mm-hmm. uh, later on. I thought Alve matched up with him very, very well. I can imagine that this is what it must have looked like if George Perez ever tried to ink John Byrne. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really does. And some of the stuff looks slightly off sometimes. Yeah. Especially some of Starfire's facial expressions and things like that. But Grummet could draw those costumes. Grummet had a handle on Nightwing's original costume in a way that nobody else... I mean, even Eduardo Barreto could not draw that costume very well. Yeah. And Barreto drew that book for like three years. And Grummet could do Troya's costume. And, and I love George Perez to death, but he has a tendency to design costumes that only he can draw. Yeah. Yep. And Troya's is one of them. Yeah. So. I think that Grant Meehan's art is really solid in this. I always liked that guy. Kind of was surprised he didn't kind of take off more he did after this he did the uh, jsa uh, miniseries he did some of the issues of that that preceded the mike parabek ongoing uh-huh. that got canceled uh, way too soon and he also did the legend of the shield the impact comic uh I had a few it, issues of that yeah it, it was good good solid stuff good. I, I did a good job with the fight scene and everything i, I really liked it and yeah th- i think this might be tom grummet's first teen titans work is it yeah it's like concurrent with Issue 57 is where he starts drawing the regular book. So it's pretty much, uh, you'd have to check Mike's Amazing World, but this is pretty much, yes, the first or second, depending on okay. when he got it. But you're right. Uh, quick hits about the artists, again, just going through the list. 
Pages 43 through 49, the art is by Colleen Doran with Romeo Tengal. Pages 50 and 51, Michael Baer. Pages 52, Grant Meehan, like we said. Page 53 through 54, Michael Baer again. Pages 55 through 56 are credited to Dick Giordano. We'll just have to trust that, that it wasn't one of his staffers. <laughs> um, pages 57 to 62, Grant Meehan again. And pages 63 to 66, like we said, Tom Grummet with George Perez inking. Getting back to the reveal of the gargoyle, as Chris sort of set up, like if you didn't have the context, I turned this page and said, who the hell is the gargoyle? (laughs) And a couple pages later, I would get that story and that history. But here's the thing. We've had like 50 pages before this of Teen Titans history. We've seen some weird really <coughs> inconsequential Teen Titans stories, like with the mm. demon impersonating a six-year-old child and the dead toddler inside a chest and everything. We didn't need that story. Maybe if they had just mentioned the gargoyle or planted that seed earlier in the story, yeah. that would have gone a long way because they talked about the antithesis. They set yeah. that up. Well, they- And I think that might be why they made it that he's really Bromstick, because they didn't lead up to that at all. Yeah. And they had introduced Bromstick before. And that seemed like almost like a last minute. Oh, let's throw this in. Yeah. And the Mr. Mitzelplik, you're the only one who hasn't appeared for uh, whatever <laughs> happened to Man of Tomorrow thing, only <laughs> works because we know who Mr. Mitzelplik is. Right. Mitzi's Pitalik. Yeah. Mitzelplik is how they used to say it on the Super Friends. Rob and Shagger have a field day with this. Um, <laughs> You know what I mean, though? Like, we knew who he was when he shows up at the end of whatever happened in The Man of Tomorrow. So it's like totally, oh, yeah. But here, yeah, unless you are a hardcore fan at this point, you don't know who the gargoyle is. So it would have been been better to seed his appearance. There's one. If you had included his earlier appearance, then you could include the fact that he used to have a ring shaped exactly like his head. Yeah. (laughs) Which is just rad. I want one of those. (laughs) There, there's one panel on the page. It's not numbered, but I believe it's page 14 because page 15 is numbered where Dick's floating, pajama Dick's floating in the netherworld here and Limbo and you see quit, quit, quit. And it's the ugly, it's like the altered, angry, ugly faces of Kid Flash, Wonder uh-huh. Girl and Aqualad. Oh. That is from the Gargoyle story. Yeah. The first one. That is the only hint you get. And it well, doesn't show like him. graveyard at the beginning in the first like few pages. That is like the opening scene from Limbo too. But yeah, if you hadn't read issue 14 yeah. of the Teen Titans, you would have no way of knowing that. Hey, Chris, right. yeah. just be careful when you say pajama dick, because I don't want to have pajama to censor that. <laughs> well, there's just a flap in the front, you know? It's you know. Uh, dick. <laughs> to go slightly off topic for one second, just to where we talking about, I was flicking through it. Colleen Doran does a great job of putting him in those early New Teen Titans issues, because, I mean, I'd have to go back and compare the panels. But it's like she had the book open in front of her and was like, okay, I'm going to insert Dick into this. Mm. Like he's watching it. And I, I, I did like that about it because some of them, some of the panels look right out of those issues of the New Teen Titans yeah. and DC Comics mm-hmm. Presents 26. And I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, definitely. I think, and, and having Romeo Tengal do the inks. Oh, yeah. He inked it. <laughs> he inked the original. So, you know, that, that helps yeah. add to it. I don't think he gets enough credit sometimes mm-hmm. for his contribution to the new Teen Titans because he inked that book for many years and he did a, he did a very, very good job. Yeah, and, I, I, you know, I, I've heard Perez say in interviews, and he, he says he has the utmost respect for him, but he, he felt like Perez's work was going in a different direction and more 
detail and his work was still mm-hmm. more open and you know but then you ended up with anchors like it was supposed to be dick giordano but he didn't do it all so then you got mike DiCarlo, and i'm really mm-hmm. not a fan of mike DiCarlo's inks i no i don't <laughs> like mike DiCarlo's, especially on perez yeah everybody looked like they were chiseled out of rock i mean mm-hmm. it just yeah i just never and he was on every dc book back then oh, <laughs> batman God, yeah. legion titans everywhere okay a few questions about the end of this story. Who saves the day? Uh, actually, let me ask another question before I get to that. What is the actual threat? What is the danger of this story? What are the stakes? Is uh, it, Dick would be trapped in limbo, I guess. <laughs> he wouldn't get out. Is, that, is it just basically out. just destroying his mind? Is it just the antithesis wanting yeah. revenge and going to destroy him? Yeah. You ever yeah, see the movie I, Dreamscape? Yeah, long, yeah, yeah. With Dennis Quaid? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that. I think you're going to make him watch Dreamscape? That's yeah, <laughs> you're going to make him watch Dreamscape. That's, that's pretty threatening. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you're right. It's It's for his mind either to drive him insane or render him a vegetable or kill him in a dream and he dies in real life type of okay. stuff. It's Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a Nightmare on Elm Street type of feel to this mm-hmm. in a big, big way. Okay. Then my next question, does Dick fight his way out of this or is he saved entirely by his friends? What is his agency in the climax of this story? I think his friends, you know, I think they help him along. But, I mean, you, you see him, you know, with the, the blows that take out the villains. So I, I think don't they, don't they say something like that's Jericho possessing him? Like at first he's not hurting the gargoyle and then all of a sudden somehow his punches land. I thought they said later on that that was when Jericho kind of takes over his body. Oh, yeah, they do say that. Yeah, it's like it, and I almost missed that too rereading it. But, yeah, they do say that. And I guess I just forget it because it's Jericho. <laughs> <laughs> Far be it from me to advocate for Jericho doing something important. <laughs> I'd much rather have it just be Dick without Jericho involved, but I guess they had to give him something to do, even though Cyborg didn't have anything to do. So, you know, I'd, I'd much rather have Cyborg had something to do. <laughs> well, did Jericho give him almost more of a physical presence in Limbo? Because Jericho's not controlling him so much as he's inside of him. It's when, solidified him. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's solidified. Because when Jericho takes, when he takes Jericho's powers, work though. Well, it, I don't know. I guess it works the way it, wherever it's convenient <laughs> for the story. I know that when he takes over the body of somebody who's unconscious, he can wake that person up essentially and can talk through them. Mm-hmm. But when the body is conscious and he possesses him, he can the person's brain works and he can speak as say. In the end of the Judas contract, he goes into Slade Wilson's body and he can control movement, but he can't control speech when they're conscious because Slade's saying the stuff, but he's shooting, you know, a bunch of crap that's around. And I think that's basically what's going on is Dick is very conscious of what he's doing. And Joey's just kind of giving him just a little bit of oomph or something that he needs or some sort of corporeal being or it's comic books. Um, Wish you would have just given him some tiny pliers. Yeah. That's how, <laughs> well, and then, canonically well, how you defeat the gargoyle. That's right. Tiny pliers. It is he and Mal who saved the day because Mal was ty- because he wanted revenge on Mal as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and the ending with Gabriel's horn opening up the portal and, and sucking him through it is basically like an alley oop. 
I I got to the end of the story, and to me, it felt like Mal, Lilith, Raven, and Jericho basically pulled Dick's butt out of the fire and kind of like, if not helped him, then actually did everything for him to kind of save him from this. And it, I felt again going back to my other question, like I, this story kept on reinforcing this idea. And part of it is just the the villain's plot, the antithesis and Gargoyle just trying to convince Dick that he was a bad leader, that everything the Teen Titans did was either silly or dangerous or dumb, that the entire existence, all of it was bad, and he is just worthless. And I know that's just like this negative reinforcement coming from the bad guy, but I don't feel like the book ever contradicted that really. Well, to try to put it in the greater context of what's going on in Dick's life at that point, it makes sense in that he had taken a um, essentially a leave of absence from the team after Jason Todd's death. And he was there and he wasn't there. And like I said, this because he's off in Gotham with year three and then then a little place of dying comes around. So this is this whole whole like I get by with a little help from my friends bit at the end is to kind of reinforce that he needs the Titans as much as they need him. Mm-hmm. That you know you can't you can't let your friendships fall by the wayside because of all the shit going on in your life, or they're gonna be there even though you are dealing with stuff. And if you think about it, he's going through all of this self doubt at the moment. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the gargoyle and the antithesis and this whole thing of being this manifestation of all that doubt, like if you've ever been in a situation where just things just suck and you're looking back on stuff and you're just beating yourself up, even though it's not as bad, it was never as bad as you're making it out to be. But when you're just having that crisis of conscience or that period of just really low self-esteem you have a tendency to paint things that you did in the past or decisions you made as much more negative than they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll beat yourself up even though if you actually looked at the facts of the case, so to speak, it wasn't as bad as you're making it out to be. You know, it's like it's like the whole thing. If like you know, you you start looking back at like high school or junior high school, and you're like, well, that sucked. Everything oh. sucked. Oh yeah, yeah. But if you if you actually look work out all the details, you're like, no, it was more boring than anything else. But you know, you you remember like sometimes the negative comes flooding back, and and that's that's almost like what's going on here, or at least these two villains are taking advantage of that because they have been perhaps watching him, and they chose this moment to strike because they knew he'd be at his most vulnerable psychologically. I complete. I I hear all of that. I agree with all of that. And it's like one of my notes was that this felt like a story told by somebody in his early or mid twenties, looking back at his time in junior high and thinking, "Oh, well, what an idiot I was," and kind yeah. of embarrassed by that. And that feels yeah. authentic because we all go through that. But at the same time, like part of me was thinking, "Okay, that feels like it's coming from Dick." But part of me also, I couldn't shake this vibe that. It might have been George Perez's feelings intruding on what he might have thought about previous Titans continuity. But from what I hear, I mean, like you said, like he seems to be championing a lot of these stories. He chooses to bring up a lot of these otherwise forgettable moments from the Titans history. So I don't know if he's like ripping on these old stories or if he is trying to celebrate them, but it just feels like the story is steeped in negativity and i i read it after batman versus superman so i just i was like i I don't want i just felt like i was in a very dirty place and i didn't want that so uh, 
Well, to, to make you feel better, Ryan, I think I can help you out a little bit with Perez. There's a, In the Modern Masters Perez volume from Tomorrow's, there is a drawing that Perez did when he was like in junior high or high school that's got all the Titans characters from like the original run. I mean, every single Titan, and uh, they're fighting some bad guy, but he's got Hawk and Dove and Lilith and Mal. And so I, I really do think he was a fan of mm-hmm. the series way before he ever started drawing it. So I don't really think he's throwing off on it. I think it's okay. he's just playing. He's playing out what the gargoyle did in the original story because the gargoyle just did it, kept doing a moral beat down on Robin Dick through that first story. Mm-hmm. So right. you, if it, it really helps to read, uh, it really helps to read <laughs> Teen Titans yeah. number 14. <laughs> and maybe this and, is and like. Also- as a fan of the original series, I kind of want to beat Robin down some. <laughs> he's a he's he comes across as a real, pardon the phrase, but dick yeah. in uh, in in the original run. He he's very controlling, and I think that's part, one of the levels I actually enjoyed this story on. Is just being like, yeah, get over yourself, Robin. You were a crappy leader. There were a lot of teammates that you had. They helped you through it, and. As a team, you're going to overcome this experience, and yeah, you're going to help. But you know what, buddy? It's not all about you. <laughs> well, and, you know, through the Titans, and, and Tom will back me up on this. I'm pretty sure in the New Teen Titans series, you know, Dick he goes, you know, he goes through these phases where, you know, I'm okay. I'm going to open myself up to this relationship with Starfire. No, I'm not. I can't be. I've got to be like Batman. No, I don't yeah. want to be like Batman. I'm not Batman. I can't be Batman. I'm going to be more like Batman. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's back and forth, back and forth. And yeah, it, you're, that's, you're exactly right. that's his whole shtick. I mean, then they get into the, you know, when he gets involved with the vigilante, when the vigilante appears and mm-hmm. then he, that's kind of when he realizes, okay, I really am not like Batman because he sees this even more warped version of what Batman could be through Adrian Chase, the vigilante. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to be this guy. And so that that kind of helps him go from Robin to Nightwing. But then then you get in the whole, you know, Corey gets married, Brother Blood gets a hold of him, blah. And then that just totally destroys his confidence again. And that's where we're at now. And, and I honestly wonder, like Tom pointed out, we're right at Before a Lonely Place of Dying. And in that story, I think there were some, there were, there were, I don't know if DC was trying to float rumors or it was just the... The fan press at the time, but I was like buying comic buyers guide back then. There was some talk: is Dick Grayson going to become Robin again? That was kind of the thing. Like you know, it's like that was one of the you know, are they going to introduce a new Robin or is Dick going to become Robin? So you know, it's almost like well, were they kind of you know breaking him down more to see what people to kind of the red herring of okay, he's going to go back to being some form of Robin or so yeah they it was an inter- it's this story comes at an interesting point in Dick's development and unfortunately he gets it all back together and then gets loses it again after Titans yeah because <laughs> the epilogue to the lonely place of dying is is issue 65 of the new Titans which is when half of it is this resolution of a storyline with Deathstroke and and some demons or something but um, the other half of it is Tim showing up at Dick's apartment and Dick taking Tim out to start teaching him about detective work because mm-hmm. Bruce was like, if anybody is going to teach you how to be Robin, it's Dick Grayson. He was Robin, which is something he never did for Jason Todd in the, in the post-crisis. Yeah. Although you have Batman 416, which is one of the best Nightwing Robin stories ever. Yeah. Um, but you're right. He loses it all again in the Titans hunt to the point where he rushes into this wedding with Corey and then Ugh. 
evil <laughs> S&M Raven shows up. And impregnates her with demon and, seed. <laughs> oh, it's just this. Then she goes through, like, the uh, the Tamaranian version of, like, Ponfar and, <laughs> and purges the evil. And she's it, it turns out she doesn't have a demon seed. Raven subconsciously implanted her actual soul self, you know, the thing that would rise out of her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it ends with, they break up and she goes back to Tamaran and he then he goes off to Prodigal. Mm-hmm. And it's not like if you were familiar with Nightwing starting in about 1996, 95, 96, up until, you know, until we rebooted the continuity, that's a much different Nightwing under like Chuck Dixon, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Granted, Dick Grayson had two excellent writers for the better part of like 30, only like 20 years. He had Marv Wolfman in the end and Chuck Dixon. And Dixon kind of took what Wolfman had done and said, you know, and then what the Bat Books had done and said, all right, well, he's confident now. He doesn't need to crush his confidence again. If he does, it's it's a whole other level of stuff. So he had the whole that series, which is phenomenal up until – Devin Grayson shows oh. up. Even her, even her issues have some some merits to them. Ugh. But Wolfman, yeah, Wolfman kind of went to the self doubt well a little too often, and sometimes it worked really well, and sometimes it it got tired. Although the Titans Hunt, I think, would shake your confidence. I mean, everybody around you was captured by this possessed teammate of yours. You saw four or five different people die. One person's a vegetable. And then they have baby wildebeest. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) And then Barrage turns into Starfire and he doesn't notice that he's banging the wrong girl. (laughs) Yeah. Then I took issue 93 to have Adam Hughes sign and he signed a particular part of Starfire's body. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, all right. I'm actually, (laughs) no, I'm happy about this because this. This session has actually given me what I wanted, which was I wanted you guys to inject some positivity because I came into this issue very negative. Oh, and I, I thought I thought it was the mental image of Adam Hughes drawing Starfire in the shower. I'm going to come back to that one. I'll come back to that one. Um, I bet you will. Yeah, I, I I was really down on this issue, and I thought I actually I thought the creators were. I thought Perez was down on like this history. I was like, what are you doing? You've worked on this book for so long. But you guys have given me a new perspective on it, which I genuinely appreciate. But here's my question. Should this story have been Secret Origins Annual number three? Or should it have been a Teen Titans annual, like between issues 56 and 57? Because everything, like all of the explanations, all of the things that you've kind of told me that have sort of resolved itself feels like this makes sense within the context of the ongoing Teen Titans series. Because this isn't the origin of the Teen Titans. This is the history of the Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. And it feels yeah. like all of these seeds are playing out with things that were in the regular series. And So now I'm left with, it's like, okay, this was a good story with a lot of redeeming elements to it, but it was misplaced. This should have been a Teen Titans annual, not Secret Origins. And I think I'm you had agree. hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. It, it's yeah. a really impressive work that I think that George Perez did, and I think he did it as a fan of the series. But for a non-Teen Titans fan, if you're picking this up because you're reading Secret Origins, not because it's a Teen Titans story, it's a summary of, what, at this point, around 100 issues of Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
and imposing another narrative on top of that and trying to clean up some of the continuity as like almost an added feature of that. It's incredibly ambitious. And if you don't come into this thing knowing a fair amount about the Titans, you are going to get lost in a slog. Mm Mm-hmm. And to add, the new Titans annual that comes out this particular year, which I think is annual number five, is such crap. <laughs> it's, it's, this, it's this resolution of a Children of the Sun storyline that had kind of been abandoned because of the crisis retcon or whatever. So it was basically Wolfman wrapping up a loose end that I don't think anybody would have even cared about. <laughs> And Chris Wozniak, who pops up a lot in like the Eclipse of the Darkness Within Mm -hmm. annuals and some of the Bloodline stuff, does the art, and it's it's '90s before the '90s. It's (laughs) I would have this this you're right this if this was the New Titans annual, it would have made more sense. It would have flowed better with the series because you could have just put this right in between if issue 56 and 57 in fact there's an asterisk like uh, what is the page 2 it says this takes place after 56 and you just have to put that out keep that asterisk in there mm-hmm. tell the fans you read this between issues 56 and 57 and that makes total sense so mm-hmm. i yeah, i agree with you too i think it would work better as a titans annual than a than a secret origins annual yeah i, I agree okay so i win yes you win <laughs> All right. um, yeah, you, know, you can always just edit it to make it look like you won anyway. So. <laughs> I was going to say. Oh, you guys don't realize, but Chris isn't actually going to appear in the final episode. This comes out. <laughs> He's gonna, we're going to fix this in post, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of the fact that this was an annual, it was a 1989 annual, and a common feature among those books was that they included new Who's Who pages. Uh, now, Rob and Shag host the Who's Who in the DC Universe podcast, which is part of the Fire and Water mm-hmm. Podcast Network. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time for that because they will eventually get to these pages. Yeah, um, within a couple of months from when we're recording this, too. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So just going through them quickly, we do get Who's Who entries for Flamebird. This is Betty Kane, who, as you guys mentioned, was originally Batgirl, and then they kind of uh, retconned that. Uh, we get one for Golden Eagle, the new one. Uh, we get one for Bumblebee. We get one for the Herald, and the Antithesis and Gargoyle split a page between them. All of these entries are done by George Perez. They look great. I don't have anything negative to say about the art in any of these entries, especially Flamebird. That looks like I would read a book about her just based on this. That's Elizabeth Shue right there. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, it totally she, is. That's who yeah. she reminds me of. Yeah, yeah, from Adventures in Babysitting, Elizabeth Shue, who I was in love with. And yes, Cindy, no, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. The artwork on them is all terrific. I do have a problem with the entry on Harold, and I don't want to step on Robert Shag's no, toes go on go ahead, throw it up. It's a problem I have with the portrayal of Mal in general in this comic and in the Teen Titans, where if he has a defining story arc, it is self-doubt. Anytime he gets a solo story or a story that focuses on him, it's that he doesn't think he's good enough to be a Titan. And then at the end of the story, he realizes he is good enough to be a Titan. And then the next story, and he does. And I'm tired of that. And I think it's kind of racist. <laughs> and in this story, they retcon one element of his introduction where they have it be that 
when his kid sister Cindy was being harassed by a gang of racist punks called Hell's Hawks, Mal piled into them in their civilian guises, the Titans, on probation pending the results of the investigation, blah, 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 uh, were on the scene and they joined the fracas and saved Mal. The exact opposite happened in the comic books. Hmm. The Titans got into a fight with Hell's Hawks, Mal showed up and saved them. And That's then they right. Joined the team. And that really bothers me that they switched that. Hmm. Good point, yeah. I see that, yeah. Well, hopefully Robin Shag will address that. Otherwise, you know, I'll just get tons of hate mail for that. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts about any of the other entries for the Who's Who installments? Uh, oh, I was going to say real quick, uh, Perez apparently was a big fan of Bumblebee because when the Teen Titans animated producers asked, they just asked him, what would you like to see on there, you know, on, on the show? And of course, they had most of his characters on there. He said, I always like Bumblebee, and that's why she's on the show. Oh, cool. <laughs> she's nice. part of the new DC Girls uh, All yeah. Ages book, mm-hmm. um, which is and great. She had I, a pretty prominent role in Young Justice, the cartoon. Yeah, they used to be Young Justice, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Um, which also did bring back Bromstick as Mr. Twister, <laughs> albeit in a strange, warped way. Mm-hmm. Bromstick is a janitor who hides inside a Mr. Twister robot that's Red Tornado's cousin. But Right. Mm-hmm. If you like the Flame Bird entry, I do recommend looking at the one from the Loose Leaf edition because McGuire, and I think Perez inked McGuire on that, and it's just as gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Any final thoughts about the story, The Secret Origin of the Teen Titans? I still love it. Uh, I, I will admit, if you haven't read, especially haven't read Teen Titans number 14, mm-hmm. you're going to be pretty lost. But just go buy the showcase, buy that, then read this. You'll be good. Showcase volume one, <laughs> and, and you'll be good. I'm going to give it a resounding pretty good. <laughs> that is resounding. Yeah. That's so enthusiastic. <laughs> it's a nice history lesson. If you happen to be doing a read-through or you happen to be just reading key Nightwing stories uh, and you're reading, like, say, year three, even though that's technically not in continuity anymore, and A Lonely Place of Dying – it's a good little enhancement to that. Not vital, but it's a nice little enhancement. But as a story itself, I, I really enjoy it. I've read this a few times over, and, and I've always enjoyed it. Although for some reason, and I don't know if it's just my copy or everybody else's, the stock in which they use to make the cover is really thin and brittle because my cover is starting to flake. Mm. So, But that's just that might just be my comic. I think mm. that might just be your copy. Yeah, yeah. Mine is- yeah mine's in pretty good shape. It's That's cut good. weird, though. The cover's cut kind of weird. That's mm-hmm. the only thing. I, I don't know if everybody's copy, but my copy has my name written on the cover. Is that you guys, too? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. No, mine actually has your name on it. <laughs> like I said, I didn't like the story. You guys have made me come around, which is bravo to you. You've given me a new perspective with which to view the story. And now, as an episode of the Teen Titans history... I can enjoy it and I can appreciate it. Uh, I think the art with numerous artists, I think the art mostly is good. There's some really great art. There's some pretty good art. There's some that's just kind of eh, forgettable. I don't think any of it is really bad. Although I still hate Mm. the cover. Boo. But (laughs) (laughs) you don't like people's heads on Secret Origin cover, do you? After the Green Lantern Poison Ivy one. Again, the Green Lantern Poison Ivy was a great image. I didn't like it as a cover. But I think think it's just misplaced. 
I would have rather gotten an issue that is the origin of the Teen Titans. This was the entire history that was part of a piece of their whole thing. So it's it's a good story. I just don't think it belongs, and I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. You guys have given me a lot more to appreciate about it, so thank you. Um, before we go, any recommended readings uh, for new fans coming into the Teen Titans? If they see this or if they hear the issue and they want to know more about these books, Hub, what would you recommend? One book, one piece of Teen Titans that you would recommend? Okay, I would recommend that you start the way that I did with one of two issues, either issue 38 where Mr. Jupiter gives them balloons <laughs> filled with hallucinogenic drugs and makes them confront their fears. Or I believe it's issue 42, where Mal gets the magical shofar, which he learns to play in a jazz band. It's such goofy fun, and it really gives you a whole appreciation for a genre of wacky Bronze Age books where... It's this strange period of liminality where they're trying to inject realism and almost a sense of grimness or grittiness to it, but they're still just wacky Silver Age stories, and it's so much fun. Nice. Chris, recommended readings for Teen Titans? I could go the obvious route and say The Judas Contract, but uh, and, and I still kind of am. I would recommend... I don't keep up with what DC, the versions that they got out right now. I think they got a trade paperback series of New Teen Titans right now because I got all the originals pretty much. But basically, you can't go wrong from New Teen Titans original series number one through basically that issue number 50. You really, anything that Wolfman and Perez do during the first run is gold. You just can't go wrong. And it probably would have continued had they not got greedy and decided to do two series and try to kill George Perez by drawing two comics at the same time. <laughs> so anything from that run, and I probably just stole Tom's pick, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I would add to that by, if you want to go deep, just keep going through the Baxter series and go through the new Titans. The stuff after Zero Hour, I reread it recently. It's crap. <laughs> Only if you're a completist will you read it. But I would recommend Games which is the hardcover, and I think it's done in trade, but it was um, this was a graphic novel that Wolfman and Perez started working on when Perez came back to the book in 89, and then it got shelved, and it got shelved for like more than 20 years, and it was finally finished and published in 2011. It is technically out of continuity because basically DC because DC was relaunching this it came out right around the time of Flashpoint anyway so mm-hmm. Wolfman and Paris were told well you know what you don't have to put it into continuity if you've read a lot of Teen Titans up to that point it's really like it's rich in its history um, it, it's a great story to begin with it benefits from the fact that it doesn't have to hold the continuity it actually makes Danny Chase look good <laughs> the hell and you um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and I would, for a really good story that I think it's still in print, I would go pick that up because if you are enjoying – and all the all the Wolfman Paris stuff is being collected into trade. Okay. Um, they're up to volume four or – I don't have them yet, but they're up to like volume four or five. And I know that in the past they've collected the lead-up to the Juju's Contract to the Juju's Contract. And I would recommend that terror – what was called the Terror of Trigon, the first five issues of the Baxter series, which was George Price's last few issues before uh, Crisis and then who was Wonder Girl. Yeah. Very cool. All right. One more time. Thank you very much, all of you, for being part of this episode. Let's go in the reverse order now. Tom, where can people find you online or in the podcast sphere if they want to hear more from you? 
Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. This has been a real treat. I love talking about the Titans. Um, you can find me on Two True Freaks, and I have two podcasts over there. Uh, one is called In Country. I'm taking an issue-by-issue look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Uh, right now, I'm at about issue 63 or so by the time of this recording. So I'm, I'm about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through the series. Uh, that comes out every couple, every about every two weeks or so. Uh, my other podcast is called Pop Culture Affidavit. It is literally everything random in the world of popular culture because I just do a different thing once a month or so. I've done a miniseries at starting to wrap up, hopefully, on the different genres that DC Comics has done over its 80, now 81-year history. And you can find that, like I said, both of those are two true freaks. And Pop Culture Affidavit David has a website, popcultureaffidavit.com, which is a blog in addition to the podcast. So check those out. Awesome. Chris, where can people find you? Well, you ain't got to go far. I'm on the Fire and Water Network, uh, and my wife, Cindy, and I host Supermates, and we have actually covered a couple of Teen Titans stories. We did the uh, Wedding of Donna Troy and Who is Donna Troy, where Cindy actually kind of destroyed that story for me with her logic, so uh, I still haven't forgiven her for it. Also on the Power Records podcast with Rob Kelly, where we talk about the old 70s superhero records. Awesome. And Hub, where can people find you? I do a podcast called Teen Titan Wasteland, which is all about the original Teen Titan series. We're up to about issue 40, and we are hitting all of the Brave and the Bold and showcase appearances in between. I also do a podcast about NBA basketball with a focus on the Portland Trailblazers. So if any of that tiny portion of a Venn diagram of comic book fans and (laughs) Portland Trailblazers fans wants to check that out, that is called It Was a Good Game Both Teams Played Hard. And I've got some old stuff that's up at Traveling Through the Bronze Age. Uh, This February, I did a series where, as I said, every day of February, I focused on a different first appearance of a black superhero. And you can check that stuff out at Traveling Through the Bronze if you want to write me an email over there or anywhere really you can reach me at ttwasteland at gmail.com i love the title of your nba podcast it was a great game both teams played hard by the way i just checked cleveland beat toronto tonight so they're up in their series three games to two oh thank you in case you were wanting following the playoffs but i was uh, i would love to try to get a ring (laughs) one more time all three of you guys thank you very much for being part of this special episode of the secret origins podcast i had a blast doing this with you guys i'm glad that we could all record at the same time this was so much fun you gave me a new perspective on this issue. Uh, I know the Teen Titans are a very beloved property among DC fans, so I hope they enjoy this. And if they do, it's all credit to you guys. So thank you one more time. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Last episode was our Simeon Spectacular featuring the origins of Gorilla City, Kong Gorilla, and Detective Chimp. It received new Twitter favorites and retweets from The 108th Sage, Ange, Bass Levesque, Brian Mulvey, Callum Nar, Codeman, at Beware the Matman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Chuck Rodriguez, David Gutierrez, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, The Irredeemable Shag, Jacob Edwards at Man Punch It, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bal, J Slab 425, Keith G. Baker, KSC GSF Podcast, that's Kyle Benning, Oscar Blue Devil, Paul Scavito, Polly at Polly PMC, 
Pointless Ephemera, Rift, Scott L. Barton, Scott Rowland, Silver and Gold, Trekker Talk, and Two True Freaks. Over on Facebook, episode 40 got new likes and shares from Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Anthony Durso, Bass Levesque, Bradley Null, Chris Franklin, Christopher Luke, Christopher Willette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Daniel Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, David Lung, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Gregor Ruggio, Igor Glushkin, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, John Mauser, Jonathan Brown, Kal-El Kamandi, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Lauderdale, Kyle Benning, Leslie Trigg III, Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Michael Lake, Mike Gillis, Rob Kelly, Rob Lance, Robert Ward, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Siskoid, The Silver and Gold Podcast, Tim Wallace, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. Van Z said, This episode was bananas. Chimply the best. <sighs> Everyone loves puns, don't they? Michael Lake said he would so read that 60s time travel detective chimp story that Paul described. You know, what I failed to mention when Paul and I were talking about it, what would absolutely make that celebrity detective chimp story would be if he partnered with the real Adam West in the story. And a new listener, well, not a new listener, but a new commenter, David Lung, said, This may make me sound insane, but I've always been fascinated with apes and monkeys in comic books. There was a long portion of my life when I would buy any comic book in a back-issue bin with a gorilla on the cover. In fact, I may be one of the three people on Earth who bought the Congorilla Limited series solely because a huge golden gorilla on the cover of a comic book was simply too much for me to resist. That's not crazy, David. That's exactly the psychology that Mark Wade described in the back matter that made so many super apes so popular. Well, okay, maybe that is crazy, but it's a neurosis that afflicts a lot of us. David continues, For further interesting ape reading, I highly recommend Comics Gone Ape by Michael Urie, released by Tomorrow's Publishing. The book offers a detailed history of apes and monkeys in comics with lots of great images. Good recommendation. A couple other people mentioned that Comics Gone Ape by Tomorrow, so check that out. If you promoted this podcast on social media and I forgot to mention your name, please just let me know and I will correct that mistake next time. Feedback is welcome, of course, on all social media like Facebook and Twitter, but you can also leave comments on the Fire & Water Podcast Network website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Most likely, I won't read the entire message, but I will address every listener who posts a comment there. For instance, we got a comment from Christopher Luke who asked if I had any plans to keep the Secret Origins podcast going after I have finished covering the issues in this series. He offered the names of some other comics to tackle, such as the Secret Files and Origins series published in the 1990s and early 2000s, and the Secret Origins story arcs from Green Lantern, Superman, and the Legion of Superheroes, all published within the last couple of years or so. I responded to Chris's question on the website, but I'll repeat it here because I get this question every five or six episodes. And that's not a complaint, by the way. Feel free to ask me any question, especially if you're asking in a way that suggests you want more from me. I like that. But right now, I have no plans to cover other origin stories or series after this run ends. I love doing this show. It's the most fun and most rewarding thing in my life at the moment. But doing it the way I want to do it, the way I am doing it, 
is taxing, and I'm looking forward to the end as a mark of personal and semi-professional accomplishment. Um, Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, said, Titano, Monsieur Mala, and Sam Simeon from Angel and Ape. Boom. There's your second ape special. Mind you, it wouldn't really work because in the post-crisis world, John Byrne wasted Titano by killing him in the first lackluster outing. Perhaps a Mala origin would also interfere with the wonderful Grant Morrison story that would come up in the next year as well. Well, what if Morrison had scripted the Monsieur Mala origin to suit his needs? Also, if Titano's post-crisis resume was a little bit thin, the book could have supplemented the issue with Beppo the Super Monkey. Paul also praised the mention of Swamp Thing Annual Number 3 as a crazy adventure for all the active ape characters and their companions. Juba the Jungle Boy throws off the trappings of civilization to run wild in the jungle in his leopard print budgie smugglers. Wow, that is some wordplay. Uh, Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast left a comment. Then we actually had a lengthy conversation about the trend towards making villains like Grodd and Sinestro more sympathetic. Some of those themes might pop up again next week, by the way, when I cover the Flash's rogues gallery. Anyway, since Chad and I already discussed a lot of this, I won't repeat the comments. You can head on over to the website to read the details. Essentially, my feeling is that villains are best when you can empathize with them, but not sympathize with them. And how I draw that distinction is knowing and understanding the villain's motivation versus agreeing with it. A villain like Grodd, I can't relate to him, so I don't need to sympathize with him. I don't need Grodd to be the subject of torture or experimentation. He can be evil for the sake of evil. A writer like Jeff Johns can make villains like Sinestro and Captain Cold more compelling and more sympathetic, too, by giving texture to their backgrounds. However, I think Johns went too far with those examples, making them almost anti-heroes. That, I believe, compromises the hero if his arch-nemesis is no longer pure evil. And this isn't just a complaint about Johns. I mean, the X-Men did this 30 years ago by trying to redeem Magneto. I never liked that, either. So, Rob Kelly from the Who's Who podcast and Pod Dylan said, I really enjoyed the idea of DC letting Mark Wade go ape with this very uncommercial idea. And he got as much out of the opportunity as possible. The only thing the cover is missing is the go-go checks. You know, I had no idea what go-go checks meant when I read that comment, so I looked up. And I'd known about the checkerboard pattern at the top of DC Comics to differentiate them on the newsstands. I just never saw or heard that phrase written. So, thank you. Uh, Rob continues, Unless I missed it, no one mentioned the aborted Gorilla City series that DC commissioned only to scrap at the last minute. The first and only issue had a decidedly comic bent, Grodd dons glasses in Clark Kent style at one point, and while I can't imagine for one moment DC actually publishing the thing, I think it would have been an amazing experiment. Paul's idea for a Detective Chimp series sounds fantastic. I picture Mike Allred doing the art. Someone give him a call. Good idea. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I missed this issue on the stands, and I've always wondered why Detective Chimp was crying on the cover, so thanks for reading Wade's editorial. I knew about the apes, but I didn't know about all of the other surefire issue-selling cover gimmicks. Okay, did no one else think the little alien baby prisoner god thing looked like Stewie Griffin made out of silly putty? Just look at that panel where he's running through the jungle with the two explorers. Good catch, Chris, because now that I've seen it, I can't unsee that or hear his voice. 
Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl pointed out that the aliens in Detective Chimp's origin named Wynad and K-Ram are anagrams for Andy and Mark. Martin suggested those are Andy Helfer and Mark Wade, but I suspect the Mark was story artist Mark Badger. Martin goes on to say, What a lot of aliens and origins lately. Animal Man, Gorilla City, Bobo. One day, someone will do a series with Bobo and fellow detective Sam Simeon, Angel and the Apes. Mind, I'd rather see a Bureau of Amplified Animals book with Rex and a few others. Me too. Gorilla City is huge fun. I like seeing it whether Grodd's involved or not. The new 52 Grodd was just pants, with all that Speed Force silliness. Mind, he was already crap due to the pre-Flashpoint DC deciding he wanted to eat people. And yes, Jeff Johns wrecks supervillains. I agree utterly that Captain Marvel suffered horribly due to Jeff Johns' weird love of Black Adam. I don't think he wrecks them necessarily, but yeah, Martin's sort of on my wavelength. Maybe a little bit further, but close. Jimmy McGlinchey said, One thing that Grodd seems to do is he seems to be able to evolve into human form. When I read the Showcase Presents Trial of the Flash, Grodd had lost his memory and was in the body of a down-and-out person, who only reverts to his gorilla form when attacked by some punks. I have a vague memory from one of the earlier Showcase Presents volumes that he evolved into a human from another time, so maybe that's one of his powers? Well, we'll see another example of Grodd taking human form pretty soon. Uh, just a small note on the Guerrilla Warfare crossover between Green Lantern and Flash. Apparently, as Gerard Jones recalled in his comic book Heroes, both Jones and Wade were reprimanded for bringing this story out because it was too Silver Agey. Jones notes that he did not do anything like that again in his DC run, while Wade adopted a more stealthy approach to bring the Silver Age aspects into his writing. About Congorilla, Jimmy said, I recall from Alan Moore's Twilight of the Gods proposal, he had Congo Bill growing old and deciding to remain in the body of the immortal Congorilla. He began to wear suits and ran a crime operation in Gotham, effectively becoming the gorilla boss of Gotham City. However, he had a secret in that his old body with the gorilla's mind refused to die and Kangorilla can't bear to kill his human body, so he has it tied up and just hopes he will die, but the gorilla's willpower keeps it alive, despite its old age. I had never heard that proposal, but I freaking love it. I would read the hell out of that story. Gorilla Boss of Gotham? Hell, that would almost get me to watch the TV show. Finally, Jimmy didn't quite defend James Robinson's cry for justice and Justice League of America run that followed, but he did say the Congorilla and Starman bromance, my term, not Jimmy's, was a lot of fun and would have made a better series than the JLA tale. That opinion was shared by a few other listeners. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I think you guys should give Robinson's JLA another shot. It is truly a legacy league. Supergirl, Dick Grayson as Batman, Jesse Quick, Jade, it's all sidekicks and legacy. And part of the story is that they understand the shoes they are filling. Can they call themselves the league? Are they worthy? Congorilla is a goofy, fun part of the book, because who doesn't need a very polished and well-mannered giant gold gorilla on a team? And Doug Zavisha from the blog Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures said, I agree with Ange. Robinson's League is worth another shot. Give it a read. For fun. Not for continuity or childhood loss, but for what Robinson was trying to accomplish knowing the big guns were all off the table. 
Doug also said, I'm on board for a Forgotten Heroes series of minis. That could be great fun if DC would just let the creative team roll with it. Jeff Parker and Paul Pelletier would be a great team to launch the concept. Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines podcast said, Let me deal with the elephant in the room right off the bat so we can move forward from here. The only notable African location in the DC universe that I am aware of and can name is a secret technologically advanced city-state run by intelligent guerrillas who at one point took over the entire continent. Marvel has a similar locale, afforded greater respect and media presence run by African human beings. That's a matter that should have been addressed a long, long time ago. But, despite many advancements made at DC since the 1970s, it was and remains a very socially conservative company that hasn't had a remotely successful outreach to non-white readership since Milestone Media over 20 years ago. DC is the Republican Party of comic book companies. But hey, they're still trying to make Michael Steele Rebirth happen ahead of his projected solo movie in 2020, so good luck with that. Now I can forget all about that and just love Gorilla City, one of those glorious comic book concepts that define the awesomeness of the medium. Unlike Atlantis or Paradise Island, Gorilla City is a fantasy locale that readers want to visit and whose politics and society are fun and intriguing. Everything goes better with apes, except daycare. As for Gorilla Grodd, he's one of my favorite comic book villains. I've known of him since at least Challenge of the Super Friends, was reintroduced during my 90s deep dive into DC, and was especially impressed by his well-drawn and written showings against Supergirl and Catwoman around the time of Underworld Unleashed. I've bought a lot of comics specifically for Grodd, and own some of his toys as well. I like when Carmine Infantino gives him a long head of hair, or the colorist a purple hue to differentiate him from the average ape. I love that Grodd exposes the folly of racism by projecting it against all humanity, but at the same time doesn't excuse it as mere ignorance or the product of bad experiences. Super Gorilla Grodd is extraordinarily intelligent and possessed of telepathy that should allow him great understanding and empathy. Instead, Grodd is so filled with hatred and enamored with his superiority over all other beings that his evil is singularly pure. Given my contrarian leanings, I don't know if it proves or disproves Silver Age cover sales theories that I have repeatedly given this issue a pass because the cover totally turns me off. The interiors look better, but I don't think I'd ever had a chance to see them before these scans. I especially like the Kangorilla art, though the machine gun monkey likely skews the odds in its favor. Wow, that was all remarkably positive for Frank. If not for the RNC analogy, I would almost suspect his account got hacked. Uh, Frank went on to talk about Kangorilla and Detective Chimp a little bit more, and stated that Planet of the Apes is the greatest science fiction franchise of all time. He justified that claim by saying, Name me another long-running sci-fi franchise with 63% positive quality across all installments, and is currently successfully on a trajectory toward being more intellectual instead of less. Well... I mean, the apes might win that by default, given Chris Pine's recent statements about modern Star Trek needing to bury any intellectual ideals under action and lens flare, so... Joe X left a short comment saying he was surprised that no one brought up DC Superstars issue 14, where the origin of Gorilla City was presented very differently. I had completely forgotten about this, but yes, in that story, Grodd, Solovar, and the Super Gorillas originated on an alien world where people evolved into apes. Grodd then used Green Lantern to transport their entire city to Earth and mind-wiped him so he forgot. Yeah, 
I have no idea why they didn't embrace that origin post-crisis. Uh, the last comment came from Jeff Nettleton. Jeff said his favorite Detective Chimp appearance was in Batman the Brave and the Bold. I loved the teaser with the drawing room mystery with characters who were pretty much pulled from the Clue board game. I would love to see an entire Detective Chimp cartoon based on that little bit. Uh, Jeff continued, I do lament we didn't get some of the other DC apes, particularly Angel and the Ape. DC at this time was a bit schizophrenic. They were trying to do everything seriously, often grimly, yet they would pull out stuff like this, a new Angel and the Ape mini or Amazing Man. They wouldn't be big hits and would slink away, but they were usually fun. I gave them points for trying humor now and again. I just wish they had put more effort into marketing them and setting aside a place for more absurd stories. I think Bone's success proved there was a market for that material. It just seemed like DC and Marvel spent too much time courting the usual crowd. Of the two, DC had more of the vibe that the independents had via Vertigo and some of their other fringe books and miniseries. However, more often than not, their return to characters like this seemed to be more motivated by maintaining trademarks than in doing something different. I think many of the creative talents had a real love for these characters, but DC Corporate didn't. Too bad they didn't do another animal issue with Crypto, Streaky, Comet the Superhorse, Ace the Bathound, Hootie the Owl, and Pooch of Gunner and Sarge and the Losers. They could have easily done it in a way that paid tribute to the originals while treating them as ideas for cartoons or something similar as a linking device. And speaking about Kyle Benning's new War Comics podcast, which is part of his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, Jeff said, There's a wealth of great material to cover even beyond DC. Charlton had a great series in Fight and Army, The Lonely War of Willie Schultz by Will Franz and Sam Glansman. That was right up there with Robert Kaniger's best, and Glansman did a lot of work on DC's war books. Glansman's own USS Steven stories at DC are great fodder, as are his two autobiographical graphic novels, A Sailor Story and A Sailor Story 2. After Mike Grell, who I finally got to meet, and Howard Chaikin, who I have yet to meet, he is the artist I would most like to meet, not only to talk comics, but experiences in the Navy. His are a heck of a lot more exciting than mine. All right. Thank you, folks. That is all for this special episode. I hope you enjoyed learning the history of the Teen Titans. I want to extend a huge thanks to my guests, Chris Franklin, Tom Panaris, Nathaniel Hubbard, and Hub's dog, who I think you could hear throughout this episode. I also want to thank everyone who supports this show on social media or with comments on the websites or iTunes reviews. Speaking of which, you only have a few more days to enter the Listener Appreciation Contest. If you still want to enter, you must submit iTunes reviews for at minimum 12 of the current 14 podcasts available on the Fire & Water Network. At the end of the next episode, I will draw one lucky winner from the list of contestants. That winner gets a copy of Secret Origins issue 41, signed by the writers Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn, along with some other free comics. You've got one more week to enter. Well, less than that, actually, since I'll probably draw the winner on Saturday, and I don't know when you're going to listen to this. But anyway, thanks for your support as always, and until next episode, take it away, Mr. Jones. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed in the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. You are, you are. Sex bomb, sex bomb. Yeah. You're a sex bomb.